like the notes I'm sending. She waits in the air. I'll take who It's the Combing the Stacks podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each decade, we cover over 200 albums spanning all musical genres and tastes from the well-known acts to the cult favorites. Your tour guides on this journey are John, Josh, and Matt, three amateur music podcasters who all share a love of music and a shared quest to hear the next great album. And now we head into the Stacks. It is the evening of June 30th, 2022, the last day of June, and you are listening to the Coming the Stacks Music Podcast. I am one of your three hosts, John, joined as always by Josh and Matt. We are a podcast that looks in our regular episodes, of which this is one, at three episodes per week with a biography and a three-person review of the album. Really interesting albums this week. Um, we are definitely in the year 1981. Uh, before I kick it over to both the other guys to check in, I will remind you that you can search for individual album reviews at our YouTube page. Combing the Stacks Music Podcast would be the search term. We are available on 15 platforms, including Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Overcast, and many others, simply by searching the Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at Combing the, as uh, Josh and Matt mentioned both, uh, last week, follow and like for both of those platforms <laughs> and, and rate and well five, yeah, stars, five stars yeah you're st- i always think it's sort of seedy when they tell you you know I, isn't I it, agree it's too. more intellectually honest if it's like if you're gonna rate us rate us but the podcasts i do listen to they're all like give rate five stars and i'm just like and they're professional podcasts so if we're trying to be professional we must follow in their footsteps but we are an amateur podcast matt as we talk okay. about many times. rate us one star yeah, I don't give a shit. Do whatever stars you want. Josh using reverse psychology right there, but yes. I dare you, rate the... us one star. It's like when Radiohead had the albums and they're like, pay as much as you feel the album's That's worth. That's right. You know what I mean? We're the Radiohead of podcasts. Yes. <laughs> put, that, put that as our Twitter bio right there, uh, Matt. The Radiohead of podcasts. So I, uh, I would if I knew how to Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, well, you <laughs> let's let Matt introduce himself since he kind of has already. Matt, how are you? Hey guys, I'm good. I was just at a uh, I was just at a Fourth of July carnival festival in my in my town here in Massachusetts. Which, fun fact for the listeners, if you want to research, I live in the town in Massachusetts that has the second uh, biggest Fourth of July celebration in the entire state outside of Boston. Okay, that's a lot of conditions to that. <laughs> Yep, the second biggest festival outside of second Boston biggest and Fourth surrounding July suburbs in, for Fourth of July in the year of 2022. I was trying to figure West out what 95. what that's based <laughs> what that's based on. I'm like, is that based on like how are they measuring that? I don't even know. I just know that that's what our town says that they do. So that anyway, well, that. better than like drowning witches or something, which is like what other yeah. parts of Massachusetts does, well, right? So how was the carnival of? It Souls. was good. It was good. My daughter, uh, we, we we rode on the she rode on the carousel and the train and and she won a uh, turtle, a little little turtle that she fished for. So, um, did you bring like a little uh, 
palm quarter like Natalie Merchant in the video for Carnival just <laughs> in the 90s? No, I should do that next time, though. I, uh, okay. I forgot about that. Um, What's your and have uh, carnival sounds like Josh and Joyce? Uh, <laughs> yes. They actually did. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's your inclination on whether your daughter's going to like roller coasters or not? Um, she's Too actually been on one before. Um, okay. So it's hard to know because she took that one okay. But as uh, any parent knows, the kids can like be okay with one thing one year. And then a year later, they're scared of the same thing that they did <laughs> the year before. So, uh, oh, yeah. so I don't know. So right now she would just wanted the smaller ones. So, uh, uh, but she does like to move around and, She's. I could see her liking the roller coasters at some point. Probably not. Probably right not going to want to say that your daughter took the roller coaster well, Matt. I don't know if the terminology there. You know, John. I don't know all yeah. those terms that you do and those <laughs> yeah. those the the underground. Uh, well, he's on the know, dark web. Yeah, the, when you're on the dark web and all those terms you come up with. So this is a family podcast. So uh, I'm sticking with that. There you go. I like it. So, Josh, how are you, bud? Pretty good. Got a nice four day weekend coming up, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I'm going to plug a, a new video game I'm playing. The new Streets of Rage game is out. And Whoa. It's awesome. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, They're still making those? Yeah. Yeah. It came out uh, well last year, I think. Um, and uh, it's really fun. Harkens back to the... The original ones. The so they call them are... side scrollers. Is that what they're yep. called? Right. Yeah. yeah. Still side scrolling beat them up and there's more moves and the animation's cool and uh, you can play multiplayer on online. So That's awesome. Got question when you played the original streets of rage which character which was the best one axel which one was he was he the uh was he, he was the like hulking the first hulking the black guy man. or the white guy he's uh, the hulking white guy he's the white guy yeah okay i didn't like Blaze. him because he couldn't i didn't like him because he couldn't jump i like the um the other guy because it was Blaze, like right wasn't that that the was the girl name? that was the Blaze girl, was the girl? Okay. axel blaze and the other i like the other guy because he was slow but he sure could he had jump some and he embarrassing was name like shoes or something you know what i mean was probably his <laughs> name back in the day yeah <laughs> so. well now i'm gonna have to clean the stack on that so yeah. <laughs> I don't think uh, it's shoes, but I think it's something equally as ridiculous. So yeah, <laughs> shoes, <laughs> so. monkey well, pox. Yeah. Well, oh, I don't know about that one, Matt. But all right, we're gonna edit there. Oh, I wasn't going there, John. <laughs> oh my Jeez. gosh. All right, we'll get, we'll we'll cut that. I was one. Just Matt, go ahead and introduce the it. albums. Okay, gotcha. Sure. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and show our albums this week. <laughs> Um, our albums this week are uh, Susie and the Susie and the Banshees, not Sushi and the Banshees, uh, Juju, and then we're going to be following up with King Crimson's uh, Discipline, and finally Kraftwerk's Computer World, or Computervelt. Computervelt. True. Authentic. Yeah, they give they give you all the German names in the parentheses, don't they? On the. On uh, well, it's the real name, that? but yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they get both. Yep. So. Well, yeah. Streets of Rage 2, the other characters are Max and Skate. Skate's the black one. Okay, so I wasn't too far from it. <laughs> yeah, so no, I said shoes no. and it's Skate, so I mean... Skate? That wasn't on yes. my Sega Genesis, though. He had a different name on Sega Genesis. No, I'm pretty sure he was Skate on Sega Genesis. Yeah, he was called Sammy yeah. in, Jap- in the Japanese version. This is Street- <laughs> Sammy? Streets of Rage 2, by the way, if you're thinking of the first one. Which was one. the best. No, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I never played the second one. The second one's better? Oh, yeah. by far. Yeah, it's considered the best one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, anyway. I, I missed out on that. We're getting way off topic here. Well, we've got Adam. Sense- His name was Adam on the first one. That's Cons- that. It was Adam. That's Cons- not Skate, shoes. Skate or is Skate. the brother of Adam, according to this Wikipedia article. <laughs> so Are, is he Axel or Adam? No, both. Axel's the white guy. Adam's the okay. black one. 
Okay, gotcha. Fair enough. Yeah, I didn't play the first, so maybe he changed his name in the second one. Okay. Well, he was awesome. Axel was awesome. <laughs> he was. He, he was grab that big pipe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, grab that uh, big well, pipe. <laughs> <laughs> it was. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, uh, we uh, have an essential question tonight that's going to take us in a different direction, and I don't believe we have any of the cleaning of the stacks, do we? I have one. I have one cleaning of the stacks. Do you want to well, clean then, Matt? I'll clean. Go All for right. it. All right, so real quick, cleaning of the stacks. We talked, um, at, it was two weeks ago, we had talked about how Led Zeppelin was sued by uh, the band Spirit oh, right. for copyright infringement. And when, so I was kind of mentioning, like, oh, I remember that happening, but I don't remember the uh, result. Well, I looked it up, and the result was that um, Led Zeppelin won the case in 2016, but then there was an appeal in 2018, which um, was upheld. And then apparently um, this they decided then to bring this before the U.S. Supreme Court um, and the Supreme wow. Court de declined to hear the case. So yeah. thankfully <laughs> they had better they had better things to rule to, to rule for or against. Um, so that so that was uh, declined by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2020. So Led Zeppelin did win it. Um, there was a side note here that I found interesting. Um, they said that the uh, that the that there were experts during the trial that testified um, to the descending musical pattern that was found in both songs, um, that they were saying that this had been a common musical device for hundreds of years. And they even excited an example of a song that did this, which was Chim Chimmery from the 1964 <laughs> Disney film, Mary Poppins. Wow. Um, and so the other interesting thing that I found was that the jury uh, concluded that the two songs were, quote, not intrinsically similar, um, yet they were not allowed to listen to the Taurus song during the trial which was one of the reasons that they appealed to the decisions because the jury apparently made this decision without ever hearing the Taurus song. So um, I find that bizarre, but mm. yeah. Um, so yeah, that, so Led Zeppelin did not uh, lose millions and millions of dollars uh, <laughs> for ripping off uh, Stairway to Heaven. Can okay. you imagine being on that jury? That'd be such a dumb waste of time. I always get to <laughs> hang out with, watch, watch Jimmy Page talk for a little while. That'd be kind of cool. I should be hearing about murders, goddammit. <laughs> with copyrights. Yeah. So. Jimmy Page, go murder someone and then come talk to me. Intellectual uh, property battles. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it'd probably be a long trial, too, but so it would be even harder. Mm -hmm. At least you go home at night, though. I doubt they're going to quarantine you for that type of trial, right? Yeah. So... Okay, well, that was a relatively benign cleaning right there. <laughs> We've just been so damn accurate recently, I think, is the deal. And, uh, yeah, we haven't even really had too many people peeing cranky on any of our platforms, so we must have brought some of our most accurate uh, – or, or we've been doing a lot more opinion. So it's, you know, it's our opinion, right? So we, we can't have to start, be wrong We have that. to start crapping on albums more, I mm. think. Maybe. I think that's what it is. Or, and somebody will fill us in on what we missed in the album. But – I am excited for tonight's essential question, guys. Um, I think Josh is going to run this segment, and we're going to look backwards while always moving forward. Is that the question? And if so, if so, who answers? Who answers? So the essential question this week is, what are your favorite songs by the bands that we've covered the most on the show? So we picked the top eight that we covered which are the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, The Who, The Kinks, 
Led Zeppelin and Bob Dylan. So all big mm-hmm. heavy hitters, and they all have a million songs. So mm-hmm. what – should we go round robin here on this, or should we just read our lists? How do you want to do that? Any I think we should go round robin. Yeah, I like round robin. All right, so we'll start with Matt's favorite band, the Beatles. Mm-hmm. What, John? You start. What's your What's your favorite song? Oh, you want me to start? Okay. Well, Matt is Matt going to do it like a top ten list of a of a favorite song? No, I have one song. I picked one song oh. for each. Ooh. Okay. I follow the rules. Oh, look at look at you! You are a true rule follower. I am going to pick. It was t- between two, but I think I'm going to pick "She's So Heavy" as my favorite oh. Beatles song ever. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. I feel like all my picks are very conventional, but um, I picked. I wasn't my... trying. Yeah, go ahead, I picked While My Guitar Gently Weeps because that's mm, my okay. favorite one. That's a good one. Yeah, I went with Strawberry Fields Forever. Okay. Um, but yeah, you could really go with multiple. There's no wrong answer unless you say The Long and Winding Road. That's a wrong answer for this question. Uh, yeah. yeah or, I, uh, early or Revolution 9. That's also a wrong answer. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a real answer, wrong yeah. answer. Yeah. yeah. We, <laughs> as we've talked many times, we're always vacillating between early and late Beatles as to our favorite eras of them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of early hits as well that could have been picked. I will sure. say my my runner up in that was clearly Here Comes the Sun by the way. That was my yeah, they, they were too. one and two so clearly for me. Abby the Road, Beatles John. have so many good songs. That's mm-hmm. right. So many good songs, but that as we've learned along the way, right? Remember I used to have my thing and then I was like, "Oh, no, Abby Road I think's my favorite Beatles yeah. album." So it held to form. Yep. All right, Rolling Stones are next. What do you got? Oof. Boy, I'll let Matt go first because this God, one is this tough is one I me. actually don't have one for. I'm yeah. just going to go on that keeps coming to my head, which is I can't get the riff out of my head, is Bitch. Oh, that's a good you know, that's my pick too. I think yeah. Bitch is my all-time favorite. I, I will say that the two runner-ups there are uh, Play With Fire, which is an early Rolling Stones song that we actually didn't cover. Um, oh, yeah. It's it's a cover itself. I love that uh, version of the song, and I do have a soft spot for Angie as well so um, can you but, can you pick a cover song as your favorite song of the band that you're talking about oh god if it's really good i think sure it's gotta be really good that's gotta yeah. be a hell of a cover the it's cover pretty good. it's pretty yeah the cover yeah, would good. have to transcend the original probably for that to be valid which i mean there was or just a lot like, of co- blues covers that were or just the fact that like the stones i mean it's not like the stones the stones had plenty of great songs on their own mm-hmm. um and so that song would have to transcend any song that they did. That's a quintessential Stone song. So, um, well, I picked "Bitch." I mean, that's yep. still my one. And "Dead Flowers" is high on my list too. But yeah, we're gonna go with "Bitch." And also, is it sense. is it runner ups or runners up, John? You're the English guy. Uh, it's runner up if it's just one. It's runners right. up if there's multiple run. Runners like, up. Okay. Got yeah. It. Choices. Yeah. Okay. And my pick is "Sympathy for the Devil." A favorite. Yeah, oh, too. okay. Scorsese and I kind of mm-hmm. I love that opening piano part and uh great like the bongo drums too josh mm-hmm. yeah yep. and the, yeah the way it builds and it's a classic okay uh david bowie's next well josh will let you start okay because I picked, you know I, yeah i picked life on mars i think this is one of the first bowie songs i heard and it's just so singular in my mind in terms of a unique like pop hit and it just kind of led me down the path to liking you know most if not all of david bowie's stuff 
Matt, what about you? Well, the first, I'm just going, because I was just posed with this question before, so I didn't think too much about it. So the first one that came to my mind was five years, which uh, mm. opens up Ziggy Stardust. And that just, talk about a song that builds, and his voice yeah. is great, and it's just, uh, it's a really cool cool track. And I'm going to pick Sound and Vision from Low, which is a song I've always loved. It just, huh. I don't know what it is. It just gets, it's like such an earworm for me, and it's that era of Bowie, and I think Low is my favorite Bowie album, so... Um, it's. I know it's an unusual choice, but um, it would be yeah. mine. I, and I least mean, favorite I re- Bowie yeah. song, Moon Age Daydream. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the um, you know Scary Monsters album that we listened to recently. There's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Ashes to Ashes is really mm-hmm. a good song. Um, I can yes. that too. Uh, it was there were a couple songs in later Bowie that I considered quite a bit. Yeah. The, yeah. It, was, it was. He was one of the hardest ones to pick because there's a lot of stuff I like you, and a lot of deep go cuts. With, you don't want to go with Dancing in the Streets. <laughs> I mean, that's a yeah. How about Little Drummer Boy? <laughs> that's a bop, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> so, I remember that techno thing he did with Trent Reznor in the '90s, right? I'm afraid of Americans. You remember that? So, I, I don't remember the weird. song. I remember when he yeah. collaborated with him, though. I remember the first time I heard that was on a a CD created by the uh, the Cola Surge. <laughs> CD that came Surge. with it. They no, still make that. Like no. I don't think so, but <laughs> it is time, so. Uh, next up is The Who, oh. and... I'll go first, I guess, okay, on this go, one. Yeah, go for it. Uh, my answer for that is always Substitute. I love Substitute as a song. It's, like, a little bit punk rock. It's mm-hmm. tight. It's it's the rhythm section's up front, mm-hmm. so um, I go that. Honorable mention, Boris the Spider, which I've always loved. Wow. So we'll go with those, too. Really? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right, I went with Baba O'Reilly. Yeah, classic. Yeah. I went with my generation. I just love kind of the rocking early, early stuff, yeah. nature of that, and and his uh, and his vocals on that are great. A lot of my I, favorite Who songs are deeper cuts. If I'm being one hundred, yeah, I reserve and a the lot right of it cha- if they're singles. Yeah, I, I reserve the right to change my mind on that too because I I, sure. like, I just said again because <laughs> yeah. I just go with that because I always say that that's one of my favorite opening tracks of all time. Like I just love the way right. that that opens the album of uh, Who's Next. So. Um, but yeah, that's it's 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 definitely up there. So I'm gonna stick with it. Yeah, I mean, and we I, didn't really yeah. cover a lot of their singles either. And there's a yeah. there's a lot of good singles that we didn't cover. Yeah. And then there's Squeeze Box. <laughs> Squeeze Box. <laughs> Homer Simpson's favorite yeah. new song, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, next up is the Kinks. This was the hardest one for me, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I picked you. Really got me. That's one of the first Kinks songs I heard early yeah. garage rock kind of set the tone for all sorts of stuff to come i mean i said on the podcast when we covered it and i'll say it before i think waterloo sunset's almost a perfect pop song so mm-hmm. i have to pick that but yeah. i honorable mention to all day and all the night a song i absolutely yeah. love from early yeah. kinks and uh, i also love the single autumn almanac as well yes, which we didn't cover because single but that's an awesome song too yeah and I went with another opening track, Victoria. That's oh. a great choice, too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Go back and listen to all our Kinks reviews if you want. Kinks were great. We there's And there's plenty of Kinks albums we did not cover. Like, mm-hmm. right. I, I would have liked to have covered Lola. Yeah, that was like the that one w- big one that we didn't cover. Yep. For whatever That's, reason. Yep. But, yeah. Okay. Uh, I think because Pink- it was the 70s, and the 70s are a lot harder to get in the, yeah. you know. Yeah. So. Uh, Pink Floyd is next. And I picked Wish You Were Here, kind of a clear standout track for me. That was that off the album that I liked the most of all the Pink Floyd. Mm. And um, 
that song is always just kind of really uh, sad and and uh, bittersweet, and it always holds up upon multiple listens. Yeah, I, I, I my answer for this one's usually "Have a Cigar" is probably my favorite Pink Floyd song. Going into this podcast, and it wasn't really. Um, it kind of to me it captures the space. It's like Pink Floyd doing what people who love Pink Floyd do, and also being palatable enough for me. You know where I. It's experimental, but also kind of doesn't lose me. So I, I do love that song. And I went with Echoes, <laughs> which is <laughs> not my choice. Pink, so yeah, which is the most Pink Floyd song you could possible. One of the most Pink Floyd songs. It's just I love. I there's like five different parts to it, and mm-hmm. and I like them all except the, there's the middle part that's kind of that's kind of like whale noises and stuff. But it's a cool bridge to like from the from the middle part to the end. So uh, I've always loved that song. So I'm going with that. Yeah, there were some um, good ones. I remember I really liked um, uh, some of the songs from the first Pink Floyd we, uh, album we covered. Um, awesome. Piper at the Gates of right. Piper at the Gates of Dawn, right? And um, that, was, like, that was their yeah. first album. That was the second one. I think we did Obscured by Clouds first. Right. It's uh. It's oh, no, it Saucer, I'm sorry. Saucer Full of Secrets. Yeah. Corporal Clegg was a was one I I liked on that album. Back Corporal Clegg was from was from Saucer Full of Secrets, I believe. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll throw that one in there. Nice. Uh, Led Zeppelin is next. Oof. I'll the let easy you guys ones, go first. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to I'm going to go with uh, When the Levee Breaks. I've always loved that song. The the, the guitar part, the, uh, yeah. the great way to great way to close uh, Led Zeppelin 4. So I mean, yeah, um, talk about a hard choice. I well, but the clear standout for me is Immigrant Song. I just love Yeah, it's good. Talk about opening riff and it really just thun- is a thunderous like exaltive song to mm. me. Uh, unusual choice for me. I think I'll choose "All of My Love" is a song that I've always loved. By that, I just I don't know what wow. it is. That like, wow, wow, like always. I don't know what it is. It just kind of has always grabbed me. So I think I'm gonna choose that as my favorite song. Remains the same is also a song I love by Led Zeppelin. So there's a lot of songs I love by Led Zeppelin, but yeah, I'll put this. So I'm a little. It's funny because I'm usually the guy that likes my music hardest of the three of us, but um. I picked ones that are a little bit less, but mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. John went with his sensitive side. Yeah, I, yeah, my Led Zeppelin sensitive side. <laughs> and last but not least, we've got Bob Dylan. Oof, this was <clears throat> mine. Was it mine's a softball here? I have to. I mean, I, there's so many Dylan songs that I love, but come on, man, it doesn't get any better than like a Rolling Stone for me. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's quint- and that's like the quintessential Dylan song as well. It's the one that like, hey, play me one Bob Dylan song. Right. I'm playing you like a Rolling Stone. You know, it's yeah. like not even close. I picked Hurricane. Uh, I've always loved that one. I love the way it tells the story and is is probably his best long song, in my opinion. So. <laughs> I like Lay Lady Lay is my favorite Dylan song ever um, in terms of mm. my sensibility and I think I'm on the record as saying that late 60s Dylan, when he was flirting with country, is probably my favorite period of his, mm-hmm. um, albeit Blood on the Tracks is probably my favorite album of Dylan, so that's an outlier, but there you go. That's my choice. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. So everyone go listen to those songs if you... For some you should have done least favorite heard. song, too. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that would have been that would probably even been more fun, like what's your least favorite song? from these groups there's some i think it's pretty easy that we could pick like 
at Bowie and the Beatles come to mind immediately of songs where I'm like, ugh. In a Pink Floyd, it wouldn't be too hard for me either. But then there's others like the Stones. It's like, what's the worst Stones song? You know, so it's, my guess yeah. is it's probably a song I've never even heard of. Right. You and know, it's kind of weird. Like, okay, yeah, we're, we covered a lot of the songs. It's a bad we, cover of something. Or just an yeah. album from like I don't know the the, the mid '80s or whatever, <laughs> you know. Like. Well, is there any of those seven acts we just did to, to before we put a bow on this? Is there, you know, because we did a bunch of albums from each of them. Is there a song you can think of from the albums that we covered by any of those bands that you really dislike? Um, well, I've said the Long and Winding Road's never been a song that I cared mm-hmm. too much for. Mm-hmm. The Beatles. Um, yeah. Ugh. This is a really on the spot. Yeah, um, no, I was just wondering is there, I mean, it's, if there isn't, it's no big deal, but that's, you know, like, yeah, yeah I, I mean. Nothing that really jumps out looking at the artists. Okay. What yeah, about you, John? Uh, I mentioned some of mine already that I don't love. There's some Dylan songs, if you know, if I picked that, they'd probably be, they'd probably trigger some different people. Like, um, you know, some of the last tracks on some of the Dylan albums, especially in like the, the mid Dylan albums, right? Are songs that I didn't oh, necessarily like Desolation love. Row. Like Desolation and, uh, Sad, Row. Sad Eyed yep. Lady of the Lowlands. Sad Eyed oh, Lady on. of the Lowlands is my least favorite Dylan song, maybe. Oh, ever, come so. on. Yeah. Now, I, I remember bitching quite a bit about like Desolation Row. Right? Yeah. The, the, you, you basically nailed both of them, Matt, the ones <laughs> that, that like, because they're the two big ones, you know, the I'm longest like, ones. I'm like, I'm lukewarm I'm on Sad, Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. I'm not a huge fan of that, but I do really like Desolation Row. So I will, I will stand up for that one. It also was at like the 975 minute mark, it felt like, of Blonde on Blonde, <laughs> I think. So, like, it was, yeah. I was starting to wear down a little bit. So, yeah. So, yep. Okay. Nice. So Matt's All got right. some This Day in Music History for us now, and take it away, Matt. Such is a history of where someone has been killed. All right, so This Day in Music History, 1975, or 75, 47 years ago, the Jackson 5 announced that they were leaving Motown Records for Epic Records, and they, in doing so, they were forced to change their na- name to just the Jacksons because Motown owned their other name of the Jackson Trade. 5. I just read about that, Matt, in a book called Major Labels, which I would oh, yeah? highly recommend. Yep. It's a book about seven different genres of music and sort of their history. And one of them was R&B. And they huh. mentioned a lot of it was about Motown. And they mentioned the Jackson 5 sort of being the last Motown act before Motown RIP'd, you know, fell apart. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, also, 47 years ago in 1975, Cher married Greg Allman. Um, mm. Four days, a whopping four days after divorcing Sonny Bono, she did not waste any time. Wow! Um, it says here it's that it's almost co- as if they were together before that <laughs> happened, man. It is. It is. I. I, I mean, you know, yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it also says here that the uh, that the couple uh, Cher and Greg Allman split after 10 days, <laughs> followed <laughs> followed by a three year on and off again marriage. Um, wow. Wait, so yeah, so they got married. So they got married, then, split then they up, split. but they were still married. Okay. And then they got back oh, together, okay. and then they went. They just started like their their, their marriage is basically on again, off again, and it was. <laughs> it only took ten days for it to start doing that. So, I guess. So they so, were estranged. Yeah. Yeah, but like unlike Axl Rose, they did not jump off a, a tanker in the middle of yeah. those. Not shit. that I know of. It wasn't in okay. the uh, in the bio there, but um, oh, I like this one. 1977, 45 years ago. Kiss 
Marvel Comics launched a comic book based on the rock group Kiss, and blood from each band member was drawn by a registered <laughs> nurse, witnessed by a notary public, and poured into the vats of red ink used for printing the oh, comic I remember that at story, Marvel's yeah. Borden Ink Plant in DuPont, New York. Wow, that is a very Kiss story. You knew about yeah, that, man. John? I did. I remember them t- telling that story. I always thought I was not never sure if that was one of those like, is it a myth that they yeah. spread or yeah? But I, it, I think it is real. They yeah. got a notary. I didn't know notaries um, were qualified to you know sign off on blood drawings, but uh, apparently this one did. So there you go. Well, and if you want to know how Matt, Josh, and I communicate, you would know that about a week ago I sent Matt a text in which I shared an article about Gene Simmons talking about a songwriting experience he had with Bob Dylan to tie it all together, which I found to be absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. So he basically was like, you got to shoot your shot if you want to write a song. So I just called up Bob Dylan and said, let's go, man. So yeah. <laughs> oh, Gene Simmons. Um, 44 years ago in 1978, United Artists released the Buzzcocks single, Love You More, um, which came in at at one minute and twenty nine seconds, mm-hmm. making the second making it the second shortest single ever released. Um, the shortest one, in case you were wondering, was by Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs. Uh, their nineteen sixty mm. hit "Stay." Stay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Was the shortest hit at one minute twenty eight seconds. Wow. Um, yeah, that's going to change soon though, because aren't artists purposefully making really short songs so that they can make sure that they get a full play on Spotify to get the royalties? That is a trend now to yeah, be at like the three minute mark as opposed to the Pink Floyd or Bob Dylan last album track mark. But even so. shorter, like I think they're going like under two in some cases. Um, wow. So, yeah. Uh, a couple more here. In 2001, uh, 21 years ago, Beach Boys member Al Jardine went to court in a bid to sue his former bandmates, claiming they had uh, the, the band had fro- frozen him out of the Beach Boys. Um, four million dollar suit was fil- filed against Mike Love, Brian Wilson, and Carl Wilson. Wow. Um, and uh, the, the <laughs> in nineteen ninety eight, a U.S. judge temporarily barred Jardine from performing under the name Beach Boys Family and Friends. Um, and uh, Jardine actually lost that case in two thousand three. So, um, yep. Uh, this is a sad one. I didn't know about this. John, maybe you did. In 2004, 18 years ago, Kink's founder member Dave Davies was left paralyzed on the right-hand side of his body after suffering a stroke. Yeah, um, I, I did. I do remember that. Yeah, I, it was. Um, and then a couple, well, there's really only one birthday that I came up with. Um, it is from someone who passed away, so I know we normally don't do that. But this would have been Florence Ballard's 79th birthday. Uh, mm. Today, she was one of the members of the Supremes, uh, passed away in 1976, um, so she's been gone for a while. But um, So she would have been 79 years uh, today. And also, I have to say, happy belated birthday to CTS. We turned two uh, oh. two weeks ago, guys. Uh, right. Our first episode of CTS debuted uh, in 2020 on June 18th, and uh, we covered three artists and three albums that day. You guys remember what who they were? One of them was Bob Dylan. We just talked about Towns so. Van Zant. Towns Van Zant. Which album, John? Self-titled. Correct. Yep. And Big Brother and the Holding Company. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. Yeah. With uh, which album? With uh oh my, the big um. Why am I? I looked this up. I forgot it too. I didn't no. Uh, why am I forgetting it? Um, Josh should know. He's the one that covered them. That was two years ago. I don't <laughs> oh my god! I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of. Uh, it's two words, isn't it? Yes, it, it's, it is. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, it's uh, cheap. Yeah. Cheap, cheap thrills. thrills. Cheap thrills. There you go. There you go. Yep. All right. And uh, and the the Dylan album was John Wesley Harding. So uh, John Wesley Harding. Yep. So congrats. And it CTS. sounds like we, we recorded. It. it sounds like we recorded in like a phone booth in that yeah. era because I think we were still recording on our phones right. if I remember yeah. at that point. Yes, we because were. Because. True story, I think the decision for us to do a podcast from germination to execution was a grand total of maybe a week and a half, would you say? <laughs> a lot of planning. In total? I, I think it was pretty amazing. It was sort of like the co- you know, the pandemic is really leaving us with a lot of time. What's something we want to do? And it's like, let's do this cool thing and see how it goes. And we're like, wouldn't it be funny if we did this for years and years? And now we're two years in. So, mm-hmm. yep. So, and ne- and better than ever, guys. I would better say than so. ever, for sure. Yep. All right. Okay. Well, we are in seg seg one, as they say behind the scenes, and I think seg one is going to be home by Josh. Correct this week. Nope. Nope. Sushi. And oh the no. Banshee. Sushi, Sushi and the Banshee. Banshee. Susie. Susie. Susie and the Banshees. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. With Juju in the opening montage, you heard a clip from Spellbound, and now you're going to hear a clip from Into the Light. All right, so Juju, this is the first time we're covering Susie and the Banshees. This is their fourth studio album that was released on June 19th, 1981. Included in this uh, this part of the lineup of Susie and the Banshees was Susie Sue on vocals, Stephen Severin on bass guitar, uh, Peter Clark, also known as Budgie, on drums and percussion, and John McGeoch on guitar. Uh, Budgie seems like it should be a bassist, doesn't it? Yeah, it's uh, and I tried to look up where he got that name from, and I wasn't. I just came up empty. It just that's he just went by Budgie. So yeah, isn't that like a little bird, like a parakeet or something? Budgie? Is it? I think so. Could be. Okay. Well, there's the sound of birds in the back of someone's thing right now. That's it's probably motorcycles. Me. Is that what? Yeah. It is? All right, so yeah. yeah, so maybe I'm Budgie's to... Budgie See, spirit I... is behind right. you. Hang yeah. on, there's there's too many freaking. <laughs> oh my god! Right, close the window. All right, sorry, sorry, folks. Um, there's always a there's always some sort of oral ass- assault really in the background. Yeah. So somebody continue. was doing laundry two weeks ago. We still don't know who it was. Yep. Mystery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so uh, yeah, so this album had two singles, Spellbound and Arabian Nights. It was a critical and commercial success, and it's considered a landmark of the post-punk genre. Uh, it's also been called goth rock, even though uh, Susie and the Banshees do not like that label. They <laughs> will uh, constantly, uh, you know, defend themselves as being not goth rock, but um, like everybody Bauhaus. else says that they are. So no one considers <laughs> themselves goth rock. Yeah, what's the problem? <laughs> like goth rock's kind of cool. Um, and this record was on the UK charts for 17 weeks, peaking at number seven. So a little history on the band. Um, you, they were basically formed in 1975 when Susan Janet Ballion, also known as Susie Sue, met Stephen Severin at a Roxy Music show in September of that year. Um, they were also big fans of the Sex Pistols and followed mm-hmm. the band around as they played. I guess the Sex Pistols, I never, I don't remember covering no, this. Yeah, 
they they came Susie Sue was like at Sex Pistols shows, she was at like yep. class shows, she was all over the place. Yeah. Do you remember do you guys know the name of the groupies of the Sex Pistols because they were they were they were there's a small group of people that were Pistolettes. <laughs> no. It was called the Bromley Contingent and she was a prominent Ooh, member okay. of this group. Wow. Um and so they first started uh, decided to play a show when they learned that a band had pulled out of a festival called the 100 Club Punk Festival, which was organized by Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren. And uh, Susie Sue suggested that she and Severin play, um, even though they had no other bandmates. Um, so uh, they decided to play. They, got, they played with two other members that they got to join with them on stage. Uh, Marco Peroni on guitar and one John Simon Ritchie on drums. Do either of you know who John Simon Ritchie is? I do not. No. Have we talked about that, him before. We have. Better okay. known as Sid Vicious. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Drums. Okay. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting stat, um, or not stat, piece of information. Uh, they named themselves after the Vincent Price film Cry of the Banshees. So after that show, um, they actually didn't continue uh, plan on continuing as a band, but a lot of people saw their performance and they um, they asked them to keep playing shows. So they eventually add Kenny Morris on drums and Peter Fenton on guitar, who was shortly replaced by John McKay. Um, and so they're playing all these shows. They were a successful live act, pretty popular, sold out a bunch of shows in 1978, but they were actually smart. We talk a lot about a lot of uh, acts being not good with, with record contracts, mm. and they were savvy enough to know that they wanted complete artistic control. So they found it a little difficult to sign with a major label, uh, but they were finally uh, offered a contract by Polydor Records in June of 1978. And then they released their, their debut album in November of that year called The Scream. Uh, Nick Kent of NME compared them to as a cross between the Velvet Underground and certain elements of Can. I think um, Nick Kent was the guy that um, that was integral in um, Chrissy Hind coming over for the Pretenders, if I remember oh, correctly. Yeah. Okay. Nice tie Some in little there. Little tie in there. Yeah. Yep. That ha- starting to happen more and more here. Um, yeah. Their second album, Join Hands, was released in 1979. And they started to tour behind that record. But shortly after, only a couple of shows in, Kenny Morris and John McKay quit the band. There was actually a lot of turmoil. They were not getting along with Susie and Severin. And uh, they wanted a little bit more control. And I, I think I read that they just kind of stormed out of it. They were doing like a record signing in a, in a music store. And uh, they were they just got pissed off at, you know, um, this, them and Sue got in an argument and they just peaced out. So they were left without um, their guitarist and drummer. So, well, in that uh, era, they, too, like everybody who was going to these shows seems like they formed a band. So they probably just thought they'd find another one like two days later. So, well, they got Budgie pretty quickly. Budgie, um, okay. they, they called upon him to audition and he was added to the band. Budgie, what, uh, what, uh, what band was he formerly with that we have covered already? Do either of you know this? I didn't. He, he was the drummer uh, with the slits. X, spec slits. Okay, yeah. He was the slits, yep. And I think he might have even played on the, on the, on the, uh, the cut album that we covered. Um, but they couldn't secure a guitarist, uh, so they got Robert Smith from The Cure. Uh, you know, uh, he was play. on that. I remember because they remember they reinvented themselves as an all-female um, thing. Remember? Right. Like, it was like right. they had males and that. Yeah, okay. So now yep. now that makes sense. Yep. So there you go. Good so thing. they got him from The Slits and Robert Smith from The Cure, who um, the, I guess The Cure was a, was a supporting act for them on the tour. So while he's with mm-hmm. The Cure, he actually played with um, for the rest of the tour with Susie and the Banshees. Mm-hmm. And after the show, he... Um, after the tour, he went back to being a permanent member of The Cure. 
And for the next album, another tie-in to a former CTS uh, artist that we've covered, they brought on John, guitarist John Begiak, who was, the, who was a, a member of the band Magazine. Magazine, They had yep. seen Magazine play, and they basically stole him away from Magazine. Um, <laughs> releasing they had good third, taste, man. Yeah, right. Um, they released their third album, Kaleidoscope, in 1980. This was a little bit more, had a little bit more variety and musical uh, styles than their previous records. They added more synths and drum machines and sitars, actually, as well. So um, a little bit different there. Again, this was another, this was a commercial success, peaking at number five in the UK charts. And they go on a larger tour in the US for the first time. And their fourth album, Juju, came out. Uh, a lot of these songs were actually written while they were on tour for Kaleidoscope. And they performed a lot of these songs on stage. And uh, so they did that was like the first time that they did that. So and so they kind of got to know the songs pretty well or how they were going to work them out. And then they went to record them. They recorded the album at Surrey Sound Studio with Nigel Gray, who as a co-producer, who another tie in also produced the first three police albums. They liked the, the sound of the police albums. And uh, so they bring him on to produce. And um, this album went to being more of a guitar paced sound. Uh, so just a couple other things real quick. Uh, Steven Severance said later on, this actually ended up turning to be a, uh, a concept album of sorts, um, even though that wasn't the intention of the record. Um, they basically just, as they were coming up with the songs, they just realized that um, that they were writing. They saw a definite thread running through the songs, which is basically just a darker theme. I didn't really read anything more other than... I was going to say, just, is it depression? Yeah, it's considered their darkest album, um, mm -hmm. and just a lot of the songs have darker themes, so I guess darkness is the concept, but it's not... It's far, it's a far cry from time, right, what we covered a couple weeks ago with ELO. Well, it ain't on the edge like of this. town. Let's put it... Correct, John, yes. Um so, uh, and the album, man, there's all kinds of artists that praise this record and praise Susie Sue and the Banshees, uh, and particularly Spellbound. This is a, a song that really influenced a lot of people, including Johnny Marr, huge fan, mm -hmm. uh, and also yep. Morrissey of the Smiths, both very, very big fans of that yep. song and this, and this album. Um, to Radiohead guys, Tom York, Colin Greenwood, Ed O'Brien, um, really uh, praising Spellbound. John Frusconti from Red Hot Chili Peppers and Billy Corgan. Um, so lots of, uh, lots of people, particularly that sound, that, that song, that, that the Spellbound song has lots of different guitar elements that, that McGeeock is doing there. So, um, so that's kind of the, the, the basics of this album. I have a few more things to tie up the end of Susie and the Banshees, because I believe this is the only time we're covering them, but, um, let's start off with our reactions to this. We'll start with, uh, Josh. What did you think of Juju? Yeah, I, I really like this album. I, I really love the energy of it. It's very danceable. It's kind of a almost a... I, I saw a lot of similarities between them and Joy Division, but I like this a lot more. I really like Susie's voice on singing. It's kind of got this, this uh, I don't know, witchy feel to it uh, when she's singing. And um, there's a lot of echo, and I think intentional echo in in the songs that I find interesting. And I really like the, the um, percussion on this, that, that really stood out to me listening to the album. They do a lot of different things, not just with the drums, but uh, like the tambourine and, and hand claps and things like that, that they add that really uh, make the songs uh, work for me. I like the, uh, the guitars are also really good. I like, I think Monitor is probably my favorite song. It has such like a strong contemporary sound to it. And, and, and that opening guitar part is really great. The, 
um, I she they they write really strong choruses. An example of this would be "Sin in My Heart." Um, oftentimes, it's just kind of repeating the same thing, but the songs are structured in a way that it really builds to that or um, has a has an energy that you just kind of want to repeat the same thing over and over again. And I think a big uh, influence, um, I would imagine that Karen O is, is influenced a lot by her because in the last song, Head Cut, mm-hmm. she kind of screams like Karen O. And, and uh, I, I feel like they're similar in that way. Um, I definitely noticed the uh, dark theme between Arabian Nights and Halloween and Night Shift and on and on sin in my heart <laughs> but i didn't i never thought of it as a concept album the uh, yeah i guess those are my initial thoughts I, I i think one negative is the songs did go a little too long for me on some of them i feel like they were just kind of riding this along i don't know if the goth music or what but they i think they feel like they these are songs to be played in clubs on some level and people are just kind of riding the highs of the songs um, and the uh, at, at some points the songs sounded a little similar um, but that kind of separated the more I listened to the album so yeah thumbs up for me for sure yeah I really like this one too um, I, I I know they don't classify this as a goth album but it's got a gothic feel to it both in terms of how it's recorded and the lyrical content and Susie Sue's voice um it's funny you bring up magazine too matt because a lot of the description i have of the guitar is sort of weaving and darting guitars which is how i described magazine way back when we did them and it makes sense because it's the same sensibility guitar wise but that that's how i sort of describe it it's um the the guitar darts in and out of the different songs mm-hmm. um and it's interesting because the the percussion which josh mentioned and certainly is very prominent is kind of that like tribal type of percussion i feel yeah, like a lot of times ac- i think that's accurate yeah yeah like uh, rhythmic sort of like it, the equivalent of like chanting but in drum beats right mm-hmm. you know it's circular drumming kind of with the frantic pace to it and so you've got this weaving guitar that's sort of it's almost like it's running like it's I, I, how I described it is there's like a drum circle, right? And, you know, the drums are, you know, peaking and flowing. And here you've got the guitars weaving and dodging. And then you have um, Susie Sue's voice sort of like cresting and falling and cresting and falling over it. And I, I like how you described it as like spells, Josh, because that's what it sounds like sometimes. It's like they're conjuring mm-hmm. like, a, like, a, like a dark energy or a dark story, right? And it's yeah, the, the drum yeah. beat and the guitar. And to me, that's the vibe of this entire album is that like the, the idea of like a conjuring kind of. Um, and I know I, I joked earlier and I said depression. Maybe depression's the wrong idea, but sort of definitely the darker darker energy of life is kind of um thematically both what they're singing about and also the sound of the album what i hear um i i didn't think the songs overstayed their welcome josh i not to disagree harshly but um i i i felt like they were the right approach i know what you're saying about how the songs can kind of have stylistic similarities because it wasn't really until the second or even third time i listened to the album i listened to it three times where i started to draw more distinctions because you start mm-hmm. to pick up the um 
the guitar is not, I was going to say layered, but layered is sort of like you'd think that like it's a production trick, right? So that's the wrong word. When I say layered, it's he's doing a lot of stuff, as Matt said. So it's not layered recording or, or production wise, but it's layered in the sense of there's lots of, he's moving from pace to pace a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's other observations um, I can make and I'll get back to it, but I'm interested to hear what Matt has to say about this one. So first, I needed one of you guys to, to, to rein me in because I did not go over the numbers on this. I was, um, was going to mention Yeah, that, so yeah. my bad. Uh, before I give my take, this comes in at number 97 on the, in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums, number four in 1981, number 637 of all time. It is not on Rolling Stone's list, uh, but it is Susie and the Banshee's highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. Um, and I loved this record. This was mm-hmm. a big, big thumbs up for me. I didn't know any of these songs. I really only knew Susie and the Banshees by name only. And this is another one of those that man post punk does it again. This is another <laughs> one of those records that just like, Seminal it just, it, yeah. And it just sounds, it sounds great. It sounds ahead of its time. It sounds like proto again, that proto kind of nineties alt rock or, you know, indie rock, even into the two thousands. It's another one of those records. That's just really um, hitting on so many elements of a lot of the music that I have, uh, you know, come to really know and love. Um, I think you've got, there's, I, I there's there's the melody part but it's also backed up with the edge of um of of the of the the musicianship and her voice is just definitely stands out as being like this really powerful you know kind of epic sounding voice she sounded a lot like uh florence from florence and the machine i just kept hearing her this is is florence um and i'm hearing stuff on here like night shift reminded me of a song i don't know how familiar you guys are with belly um, yep. the Tanya Donnelly band, but that sounded like a, one of those songs off of King or Star from like the mid nine, early mid nineties. Um, and, uh, you know, a song like, I agree with you, Josh, I think monitors a really strong, strong track. I love the guitar tone and into the light, that little guitar part that he's doing. There's just so many great elements that are happening here. And it's just such an interesting record. It's really, um, it's, 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 it's upbeat and it is dark too. So you're kind of getting, you know, there's like an upbeat nature to it, but it is kind of, yeah, I like the darker nature of it as well. So it's just, it's just really solid. I think Voodoo Dolly is the hardest uh, song on here to get into. And actually their, their co-producer was kind of like advocating for them to leave that off the record, but they very much wanted it on there. That's kind of one of those instances of where a band said, actually, we're trying to get people to be uncomfortable here. We're trying to, you know, um, to trying to go there. We want this, 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 you know, to be on the album so i'm not that's probably the only the only song that i don't love it's just it's kind of it that that one runs a little long for me um i agree i agree with john i don't think the other songs are too long i think they're they're fine at just where they are but voodoo dolly's a bit much for me um you know but uh, it's 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 a small it's a small uh criticism that i have of the record overall but just again another record of a band that i really knew nothing about um and just from the from the beginning i was like damn this is good this is just really good and uh, there's a heck of a lot more i'm not going to go through all of them but there's a ton a ton of artists that when i was reading through this that were just listing this and Susie sue oh i mean Susie the banshees as being yeah. seminal influences even joy division people from joy division were like they yeah. were influenced by Susie oh, sue wow. because yeah so like and we say joy division influenced all these other people but they were influenced by Susie sue well, so i think that they probably don't get as many props as they as they should get like in the mat like they're not in the rock and roll hall of fame they don't they're oh, not yeah. they're they're bare they're barely on the top 100 list here but this is a this is an 
album in a band that's very revered amongst a, lo- a ton of reputable artists. So um, well, big we thumbs up even, for me. I loved it. We haven't even mentioned Noise Rock, and this sounds yeah. this album sounds a lot mm. like early Sonic Youth, like Evil and like New Moon Rising and stuff like that. Mm. A lot of that era of Sonic Youth, which I don't know how well you guys know that era, but like sort of that ominous sounds like noise rock e elements mm-hmm. like the the disconcerting sound um is a is a hallmark of that and i got a a, a big vibe of that on this mm-hmm. album as well that's why i don't know i don't know if i connect this as much matt with the 90s as much as i connect it with what's coming in the 80s um and I'll be I think it's every, I, I think it's everything. I mean, I, I heard I heard eighties, yeah. nineties, and two thousands, and this this is another one of those. It's, it's a lot of the um, yeah. post punk stuff that we're hearing. It's just this is what it kind of is, and probably one of the reasons I like it so much. But yeah, Sonic Youth was listed on there. My Bloody Valentine was another one that it came across, John. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, well, you can't, you can't, yeah, you can't listen to this without hearing them. Yeah. In it. And, and, and and we mentioned the Smiths, like songs yep. like. Um, some of the songs on "Suffer Little Children" on the first Smiths album is like a, is I I know both of them Johnny Marr and Morrissey as you mentioned love it and that's sort of that dark content material that I don't know if um some of these songs are about things specifically but Night Shift and Arabian Nights in particular I'd be curious to they seem very specific lyrically so I, I don't know if they're about Arabian something. Nights I want to say I think they said something that was like a criticism of like. The treatment of women in like Arab countries and like, like I mean the, the lyrics like, the are dark. They had to wear. Yeah. Um, well, they talk about like genital mutilation at one point in that too. So I mean, it's yeah. kind of like yeah, it's it's intense. Yeah. This is, this is a perfect album to play at night too if you're looking for like a mood a mood piece. Um, or I can imagine this band playing in like a an abandoned church or something. I feel like it, that vibe is what it gives off. I. It felt like as terrible as it sounds, like there were songs on this that sounded like the music of someone like stalking someone at night. You know what I mean? Like predator type music. That's what the vibe was, though. Like Night Shift in particular and Sin in My Heart. It was like sort of a two piece of like, oof, this sonically sounds like like think, a yeah. crime you know like is is the the dark vibe but you're think, right it's it's yeah. for night but it's like it's not like ooh relax you or conto it's more no, just no. like ooh what's my worst impulses at night you know yeah it's a little predatory in some way i think the mm-hmm. tribal like percussion sound gets to that in some level but yeah doesn't it sound like that though it's it's i i, I don't want to over dramatize it but at times it sounds like the music of a like a dark crime, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I feel like, yeah, I, yeah, maybe I, I, I could listen. To, I have no problem listening to this during the day, though. Oh like, yeah, yeah, I'm just. Oh, saying. I loved it. I loved yeah. it. I just, I'm just saying, there's a vibe to it. Like you didn't pick that up at all. Matt? It's a darker it vibe. Like I, I mean, I, not that specifically, but no, it's, it's definitely a darker, moodier. It's like, yeah, when I heard, it, I'm like, yeah, I, I, of course, it sounds like God, like uh, what goth. But I mean, it sounds dark. like it should. Yeah. Well, but it's like it's it's like into the light. Arabian Nights, Night Shift, you know, (laughs) there's like, there's Halloween, you know, there's like a definite vibe of the evening to this, like, yes, uh, that was was very, both Mm -hmm. sonically and lyrically, even without being a lyrics guy, Matt, it's like, I feel like sonically it came across. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, There's not really like a love ballad on here or anything like that. There's not, it's, it's pretty dark in emotion and tone for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, big thumbs up for me. I like this one a lot. Yeah, I really liked it. Well, it's, yeah, me yeah. too. Well, Matt, we might have to do an essential question on 
favorite post-punk albums or do our top uh, 10 post-punk. I'm so telling you, it's my point. new favorite. It is my new favorite genre. I'm telling yeah. you. Um, this is so, a goth album, though, really, it, it, yeah. at its core, I feel like. I really yeah. do. And I know that she runs from that, and I don't want to overgeneralize, because it goes into other genres, too. But it's it's very much in that lane. Why so. do you think? Why do you think that was such a taboo or so, it's like something that people just ran away from? Like what? Because it Probably didn't really you're too exist. Niche. But it didn't too really niche, exist before. Right. Too niche. Yeah, I mean, it didn't exist before these. Was goth rock a thing before like 1979 or what? I mean, yeah. I don't feel like goth was something that the scene itself named itself. I felt like it, I feel like it was thrust upon them, kind yeah. of, and maybe that's a piece of it. Like. I don't like the people are calling us goth, you know, I think it's, you get what I'm saying? It's kind of, yeah. that. I think th- that might have part of it. Do you think it's similar to like emo, the label of emo and like how a lot of bands didn't really want to be used that label? And- yeah, I just think it's interesting because it's, cl- I mean, and, and that's one of the things that we haven't even talked about, but one of the things that Susie Sue was, was known for even before the band started when she was back following the Sex Pistols was just how she dressed, right? She was she dressed in lots of black. She really mm-hmm. thick eyeliner, you know, kind of like hair kind of covering her eye and stuff like that. I mean, that was kind of like part of her image. Um, and that was also very influential because she was an early, you know, she was doing that in the mid-late 70s. Um, and so that was kind of... She was kind of like a scenester who became a trend, a tastemaker, kind of a little like yeah. Courtney Love, right? Who was like a scenester, like... She was around and kind of knew when you read about like Courtney Love, right? She, she knew all the riot girl people. She, you know, knew Billy Corrigan yeah, and also knew Kurt Cobain and knew, right. knew all the different. And, and I feel like Susie Sue was kind of that, but then segued into like being a trendsetter herself. So even though their music's very different, that's yeah. a little bit of the vibe I got from her. Courtney Love, another big fan of Susie and the Banshees. It's just like, yeah. And not surprising. Like, I yeah. mean, that's yeah. there's there's a lot of, you know, yeah. Like that sort of iconoclast that, yeah. you know, if we go back in time, somebody like Nico, right, who was sort of around right. all of these people, you know, and sort of and I'm using a lot of female examples of this, but there's male versions of this as well. But yeah, um, yeah I just th- those like the line of like Nico to like Susie Sue to, you know, um, Courtney Love. Just I don't know why that it's interesting. You yeah. know, I did that all of these bands that I that mm-hmm. I like. Yeah. To some degree where they, yeah. No, so. yeah, there's um, there's lots of lots of influence here for sure. And so that's a lot of people, yeah, it just seems like, because I, I watched like a like a, a third-rate documentary on, that I found like on YouTube or whatever about them and stuff, and just the, 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 the comments about them and her in particular about just how much, like, just how, how much credit re- she really should get for moving, moving the, 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 the goalposts as you, as it were. And just, mm. and, and with the influence, because a lot of these bands that we've talked about, are, I was just surprised. Like the joy division thing was very surprising. I was like, wow, really like, you know, that they were just really blown away and she, they were around, they were like in the mid six, mid seventies, you know, they started doing mid late seventies. So, yeah. um, so yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, um, it's like I said before, and I, let me clean a stack, by the way, I said a uh, new moon rising earlier for Sonic. It's bad moon rising. I, realized it as soon as I said it. But yeah, if you um even if you look at that album cover, Josh yeah. and Matt, on Spotify, look at the Bad Moon Rising uh Sonic Youth cover. Mm-hmm. It's like a it's like a scarecrow with a Halloween head, like in a dark setting thing, and it's like as I listen to that album, I'm like, oh boy, this this is a lot like oh, yeah. Bad Moon Rising from Sonic Youth, like vibe wise. And if you listen to the album, it's oh, yeah, like definitely. whoa. It's it's there's a cl- and I believe they cover halloween on that album if i remember correctly they do. 
Yep. Yeah. It is the and most so, listened to song on Spotify on that record. There you the go. So that that and that it's funny because I didn't even put two and two together at the exact moment they covered Halloween on that album. But then the more I thought about it, I'm like, hmm. So <laughs> there also, you go. They also have a song on here called Satan is Boring. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Ghost Bitch. Yeah. And and yeah. Society is a whole. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm insane. It's, this has the best. This has the yeah. best uh, title. Uh, yeah. Sally 69, too. <laughs> yeah. They, brave uh, that brave movie, men run in my family. <laughs> we are going to cover plenty of Sonic Youth down the road, but that's one we don't cover, and that might be one you want to check out, Matt, if you like this album. So Death Valley 69. Yeah. There you go. So, <laughs> well, throw. all right. Well, three three big thumbs up. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And uh, just a few things here to follow up with Susie and the Banshees. They did release seven more albums after this. Um, mm. Unfortunately, McGeeock was dismissed from the band after the recording of their fifth album due to excessive alcohol use. Um, and Robert Smith actually joined the band again for a brief period of time in 1980. Uh, but but then he left the band again in 84, say, basically saying, I can't handle working in two bands full time. So, um, yeah. But he, he did <laughs> go back. There were a couple of side projects out of this. Uh, Su- uh, Suzy Sue and Budgie went on to uh, cr- create a uh, side project called The Creature. And uh, Severin and Robert Smith actually formed The Glove. I think they might have done one or two albums together. So a um, couple of side projects there. They, uh, rec- the Susie and the uh, Banshees recovered a, uh, recorded a covers album in 1987 called Through the Looking Glass. And that included a cover of Strange Fruit, which was a song ah. that we heard um, back in the 60s. That was... Uh, Miles Davis? No, 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 no. It was... Uh, what's her name? Cinnamon. Oh, Nina uh, Simone. Nina Nina Simone. Yeah, it did Strange yep. Road, which it was that that's was right. originally a Billie Holiday song, I believe. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of interesting. Um, and then also Susie Sue and Budgie got married in 1991. Oh. Uh, at, but then they divorced in 2007. So uh, <laughs> that's so interesting. You're in a band together yeah. for 11 years. You get married, and you're married for a while, and you'd think you'd if you made the decision after that person. long that you would yeah, know. Right? Yeah, and then it's like yeah. you don't just wake up. But mm-hmm. hey relationships are weird so they were um they were one of the headliners on the first bill for love for the first Lollapalooza tour and they were also uh, asked to compose a song for the batman return soundtrack for at the request oh, nice. of tim burton um they finally broke I, up and go yeah, ahead i would guess both tim burton and perry farrell would be <laughs> yeah. fans of Susie and the banshees in different ways so yeah. that both of those things make sense uh, and they finally broke up in 1996. Uh, Susie Sue and Budgie continued to record as the Creatures for a while. And um, they are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but I think they probably should be. <laughs> have they even been nominated? Uh, that I don't know. I didn't see yeah. anything about the Well, I think Rock you have Hall to listen fame. to more than one album of theirs, Matt, to make that definitive a statement. Nope. I just so. say yes. that. When I, I just say that because um, when, you, when you just are – because I've done a lot of research for a lot of these acts – and when mm-hmm. you're just reading person after person after person, just right. like totally like in love with this band, with this yeah. record, with these songs, it's like, you know, just I don't have to what's, listen to a ton just to know how important they are. Well, you know? what's next? Like neutral Melk Hotels going in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Matt? That same same idea. Well, they right? only had like, two albums. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to be like Sex Pistols type. Uh, you know, how okay. many bands were formed after seeing a neutral Milk Hotel? Yeah. Uh, question. show you know probably not not much but Susie and the banshees had like what uh 11 albums something like that mm-hmm. so they were you know they, they were staying power there mm-hmm. gotcha okay all right josh yes moving on we next album we're covering is 
King Crimson's Discipline. And in the opening track, you heard Mata Kadusai. And now you're going to hear my favorite track, Frame by Frame. Okay, Matt, what are the stats on Discipline? So Discipline by King Crimson comes in at number 85 in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums, number three in 1981, number 566 of all time. It's their third highest rated album on Best Ever Albums behind uh, Red from 1974 and In the Court of the Crimson King from 1969. So each decade here with uh, King Crimson, we did cover those albums in uh, previous episodes. Um, and this album did not make Rolling Stones. I don't think any King Crimson made Rolling Stones list if I think about it now. So, and yeah. as we mentioned, this is the second act that chalks in with an album in each of the decades we've covered with David Bowie being the yep. first, I, I believe there's one other down the road, but that deserves, that deserves official CTS hall of fame. Uh, it's pretty damn know, impressive credibility. And, yeah. and the other, yeah, the other crossover there is Robert Fripp helping Bowie on, on, um, on low and some of those other albums as well. Robert Fripp's like a low-key CTS yeah. Hall of Famer because he's yeah. on a lot of he's also on I forget he was on some weird albums where he contributed guitar too remember he yep. I there was somebody he was on with who was like a pop female singer and it's like and then we brought Robert Fripp in and, <laughs> and he just was all over the place so he he's played with his, Diana Ross he's got his own uh phrase too Frippertronics or something I saw um I think for, in regards to his sure. like, electronic music fripping stuff. out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah perfect. a frip on the radar <laughs> <laughs> perfect uh perfect seg there matt we both we covered red and in core the crimson king um this album is their eighth album and it was released september 21st 1981 and we last covered red in 1974 and uh they really had only a seven-year hiatus between those those <laughs> albums. Uh, they did release a live album called USA in 75. So between USA and this, we didn't really miss anything uh, in terms of coverage. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, that will uh, be a trend tonight, by the way, just FYI. Yeah. So continue. Yep. Um, only guitarist Robert Fripp and drummer Bill Bruford remained from the previous incarnation of the band when we heard them in red. And um, they added bassist Tony Levin and guitarist slash vocalist slash lyricist and Adrian Ballou um, this time around. Now, you may or may not remember that Fripp disbanded the group in 74, uh, saying the band, quote, ceased to exist and, quote, was completely over forever and ever. So <laughs> that was a lie. I really uh, mean it. <laughs> yeah. um, during this time, Fripp produced, uh, pursued spiritual interests and played with uh, Bowie and Peter Gabriel and Daryl Hall of Hall and Oates. Oh, um, wow. Nice. How long until one of us pursues spiritual interests <laughs> and takes a hiatus? Let's hope not for a while, but yeah. Yeah. 
when I say it's completely over forever and ever, then we'll know. <laughs> <laughs> Seven years later. Nineties. <laughs> yeah. um, he also had a solo career during this uh, intermission, and he had he had a, a short-lived new wave band called League of Gentlemen, also that put out an album <laughs> that I couldn't That's find on uh, Amazon Music. So maybe it's on Spotify. League of Gentlemen. Yeah, and like uh, in 1980, late 1980, Fripp formed a band without the intention of it being King Crimson and uh, he recruited um, Bill Bruford back and the other members Tony Levin and Adrian Ballou and they also some of them auditioned for the group as well so they weren't just uh, brought in automatically they started out actually as the name Discipline um, for this band but then when they were recording in England they later changed their name to King Crimson Probably, probably a smart move um, to capitalize on their previous success. Mm. As is usual with King Crimson, there is experimentation on this album. Um, I'll, I'll give give them that. Every every album we've listened to has been different. <laughs> I think our mm-hmm. thoughts on Red was that it was pretty metal and, and heavy, and in the Court of the Crimson King is definitely prog and different from that album. So, And this album is different from those two. They... Uh, drew on newer influences when crafting this album like punk and funk and world music i think all of those can be heard to some extent one extent or another on this um they in addition to um bass levin also played an instrument called the chapman stick which is a two-handed tapping guitar instrument that has bass and treble ranges so it kind of is a weird it is does look stick like if you look it up. It's kind of a sitar in a way too, or in the look of that you hold it upright like that. Um, so that was that was interesting. And uh, Bruford, the drummer, experimented with an electronic drum kit on this album and cymbalist acoustic drums as well. Uh, mm. imp- improvisation was also um, used, but reined in compared to some of the previous albums. And uh, Adrian Ballou kind of brought more of a a pop sensibility to to the song structure and the writing um he wrote a lot of the lyrics for this um well as much lyrics as there are at least and and uh (laughs) so that also contributed to the sound of the album um uh frips uh some some interesting facts on this uh mata kudusai means please wait in Japanese, if you were wondering. And mm. the indiscipline lyrics were based on a letter from Adrian Ballou's then wife, Margaret, about a painting she had done. And Thela Hoon Ginji is an anagram of heat in the jungle, which they say in the lyrics of the song, or say heat in the jungle, I think. And while the track was being recorded, Adrian Ballou was walking around London with a tape recorder looking for inspiration and was harassed by a gang. And then a the police and you can hear those that story in the song itself uh, Fripp recorded it without his knowledge and then put it in the song huh. too uh, when he was telling the bandmates about the story um, Fripp's electric guitars also played in seven eighths time during part of that song so that kind of gives an interesting um, t- time signature and feel to it um, the instrumental track sheltering sky is based on the 1949 novel of the same name by author Par- Paul Bowles, and he is kind of associated with with the beat um, poets in, in that era, even though 
he's kind of got like one foot in based on what I saw reading him. He lived in also, you know, kind of associated with the beat poets is like Morocco and Tangiers and kind of that area of Africa. And I think he lived over there for a while and kind of brought some, um, uh, you know, fame or recognition to that area. This album reached 41 on the UK album charts and 45 on the Billboard 200. Initial reviews were mixed to positive. And this is the last time we cover them, although they did make albums in the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. Damn. All four members of this lineup, Incarnation, are still alive. Um, The later Incarnations have different members. One of the original founders um, from Court of the in the court of the Kingsman King has died and some of those um, other members have died as well but all four of these guys are still kicking it so what did you (laughs) kick it one time Uh, John what did you think of of discipline yeah I I am a fan man of King Crimson they I love their spins on music that doesn't always speak to me Um, Mm -hmm. this this is the type of prog rock I like where it's audacious and incredibly musically proficient across all instruments and varied. Uh, It's got world music elements, but not in a way that irritates me or seems appropriated. It's Mm -hmm. heavy when it needs to be from the guitar lines that are in here. So it's a lot of things. I really, it's a, it's like a heavier version of prog and world music, which would not sound like it would be a good compilation of mm-hmm. things now the, the drums on this josh are they traditional drums or is it like electric drums i think like drum machine yeah i think it's both i think there's okay different ones throughout or interspersed yeah because yeah. it feels like i'm listening to like a drum machine at times which was the only part at times i didn't love as much because i unpopular opinion in this day and age for some reason people like are really into electric drums now which has never been a sound that I like as much mm-hmm. as real drums, but I, I'm in the minority, I think, you know, especially with, you know, the whole in the air tonight and everybody like losing their shit over that. But mm-hmm. anyway, that's a sidetrack right there. But the, the standouts on this one are the virtuoso playing, which I was amazed by at times, like how it kind of came together. It was, um, I know, I, I don't want to overuse the word frantic because I used it in our last review, but there was a frantic element much like the first album we covered which was uh juju by Susie and the banshees there's a like a tribal drumming and weaving guitar element on this as well but the the weaving guitar here though is outside of sort of the post-punk um realm and this one's clearly more in what i would consider to be like the prog realm but rooted also in traditional rock and roll guitar as well which is why uh, it's 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 funny because it, it's like discipline is the album right and like what that guitar does is it adds like a level of discipline to the sound in some ways is the note i wrote to myself um there's two instrumentals right the last two tracks correct um yep which i liked quite a bit um where does this album break into like is like what's the album like i i didn't look it up josh where does it break from like side a to side b Sure. Uh, the first four are... tracks are side A, so Elephant Talk, okay. Frame by Frame, Matic Kadusai, and Indiscipline, and then side B is Thelahun, Genji, okay. and the two, two instrumental tracks. I was wondering if the two instrumentals were side B, you know, and all the spoken stuff was side A, stylistically. Um, what does the Chapman stick sound like, Josh? 
that's a good question. I think it's mm-hmm. uh, it's got bass and treble on it, so it's okay. I think replacing the bass at at times in the songs. Yeah, because I made a lot of notes about the fact that the bass sound was interesting, and I I attribute it to like a a recording, mm-hmm. like a production or recording sound. But I'm wondering now if what I was thinking was a way of recording or production oriented was really Chapman stick and yeah. what that sounds like. Um, do you it know which song that it's a, it's a, it's a member of the guitar family. It usually has 10 or 12 individually tuned strings and is used to play bass lines, melody lines, chords, or textures. Yeah. It's, also, it's really poly, skinny. It's polyphonic too, whatever that means. Because I specifically mentioned the the bass in Thelahun, uh, Ginjit, and Elephant Talk mm-hmm. as being where I, I thought the bass sound was uniquely produced. And I'd be curious, as we dig into it a little bit, if those are the two songs that might have used it quite a bit. And if like what I was hearing and attributing to production tricks was really just the Chapman stick. So um, that's going to be a cleaning the stack for me. Uh, potentially down the road but yeah this one gets a strong thumbs up for me i i was a thumbs up on all three king crimson albums but i think this might be my favorite of the three hmm. to be honest i really enjoyed this one nice yeah i like this too um i i i, I this might be the most consistent of the of the um the three because yeah. i think i definitely remember there's a long track in um in the court of the crimson king that's basically just noises Right. So it's and it's long. Right. And yeah. I think that Red had one of those two, maybe not as long, but um, it's hard. like but and this doesn't have that. Right. I think each one of these songs stands alone on its own to kind of be an yeah. enjoyable song. Right. Whereas I think maybe the other two albums, you might skip it. So in that sense, John, I might agree with you that this is a mm-hmm. more consistent record. Um, God, I it's it's amazing that Adrian Ballou was on here. Josh, I don't think you mentioned. Did you mention that he also had played on um, uh Remain in Light with the Talking Heads that he was he, no, he had played, yeah. So he Wasn't I remember that he doing in research yes? there. Was he in Yes? Uh, uh, I don't think so. Bill okay. Bruford was in Yes. I oh, that's right, Bill Bruford. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, wow. Okay, yeah, so, you're right. I yeah. But Adrian Ballou, I think he started. He started with this was him just joining King Crimson after working on um, uh, Remain in Light. Guys, okay. an elephant talk. If that doesn't sound like a Talking Heads song, yeah. like whole, like even to the point where like he sounds like it sounds like David Byrne singing that, like and yeah. he, and, like it, the lyrics are very much like a David Byrne where he starts, let's talk about talk and like discourse, yeah. you know, and he just yeah. starts going through all these words and stuff that he's just shouting out. It's um, and and Thela Hoon Ganjit sounds like a a, a, a Talking Heads song as talking well, like song, definitely yep. mm-hmm. like that polyrhythmic kind of sound. Um, you know the the, the interesting guitar parts and just kind of the the, the goofy nature of the vocals um, it very much sounded like that so I I was waiting to hear if there was any influence there at all because god that, that elephant talk in particular sounds like a freaking talking head song you want to hear um, something interesting Matt which might mm-hmm. I was curious because I, I, I looked up um, Baloo's uh, Robert Baloo's stuff ahead of it and um, the first Adrian Ballou yeah he was born Robert Ballou here which is why oh, I think I got thrown okay. yeah. um, he, his first person he played with was Frank Zappa which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because Frank Zappa as a guitarist kind of in some ways has some Robert Fripp in him in terms of the play. Yeah. So that's, that's the cool part. What you see with the two guitarists here with Fripp and Baloo, like particularly in a song like discipline, that is just 
the guitar playing that's happening there is insane and they're both doing totally different things it's almost yeah. like you can hear one guitar in one ear and, and the other and the other and um and it sounds like they're playing totally different things but together it just syncs well together for some reason and it's just it's like almost hypnotic they put you it kind of puts you in this trance because they keep doing it over and over and over again and i'm like the amount like how difficult that must be to just keep playing those notes over and over again like that in in rapid fashion is just it's it's crazy and so that's there's parts all over this record that are just have really crazy guitar parts like that which um i you know that discipline might be uh, maybe that might be my favorite song on here. It's just, it's so crazy what's happening with that mm-hmm. song. Um, and then you've got songs like Kadasi and um, what is it? The Sheltering Sky, which are more, they, they kind of go, it's almost like a ballad. That Madakadusa is kind of like this. It's, there's not really virtuoso stuff happening mm-hmm. there. It's just kind of like this crooning kind of slower song that's that's going on and it's i don't know it's kind of a nice it's it's only 347 three minutes and 47 seconds but it's kind of a nice little palate cleanser from like the crazy chaotic nature of what's happening with a lot of the other songs but um but yeah this is uh this is kind of crazy stuff that you're hearing here and i just and i and just looking at i got the wikipedia thing up on here and it says uh, pitchfork considers it an influence on math rock and that's not a term that i thought of while listening to it but after reading that i'm like yeah, like my understanding of math rock seems very, it's like a very calculated, very complex, very structurally um, tight kind of, you know, uh, piece of music. And this definitely sounds like that. So, um, yeah, I might be with you, John. I might, this might be my favorite King Crimson album. It doesn't, my, it doesn't have, I think my favorite song was on red. I forget what the last track on that was. That was just a fantastic song. But I think, I think this is probably more consistent. Um, maybe those other records are more groundbreaking or whatever, but, um, but this was a, if I was to play this album from start to finish, uh, I would probably choose this one over the other two. So I'd probably go with you on that, but yeah, it's great. These guys are like, yeah, the virtuoso stuff all over the place here. Very interesting. But I, yeah, John, it's not, it's not a crazy prog rock. It's not like Mm-mm. eight different movements yeah. and always changing it. Even though it's 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 still prog rock, but it's it's more it's much more linear. It's really complex, but it kind of sticks with one idea rather than like one maybe two ideas rather than going like five or six, which some prog rock songs yep. can do. So um so maybe in that regard, this would be a better entryway into prog rock for some people than um, maybe some of the Genesis or. I don't know. Uh, oh, easily. Pink Floyd or easily. Like whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's it's a much more it land, it's a safer it's a softer landing. I, I yep. would say. So, uh, yeah, thumbs up. I like this a lot. Well, let me clean some stacks real quick before we go to Josh. The song you keep thinking of, Matt, is Starless because I remember that, right? That's yes, the, that's the that's my favorite yep. King Crimson mm-hmm. song. Yeah, that was great. Yep, that's an awesome song. And also a couple more things about Baloo I found interesting here. He worked with Bowie and Eno on Lodger which we actually never covered, but right. is Oh, is in, that the other Berlin yep, tr- Trilogy album? You got it. Yep. So that's a piece that I thought was informative on this. And then the other thing I thought was very interesting was that he spun off with the Talking Heads, uh, the Tom Tom Club, which is basically everybody but uh-huh. Byrne. And they actually, Tina Weymouth and Chris France asked Blue to replace Byrne as the front man oh. that he pol- he politely turned it down. Yes. Um, and although they just... France and Weymouth said that didn't happen. And then I guess also he <laughs> ended up on the outs with them because he claimed that he wrote half of the songs on the album and then Weymouth ghosted him his phone calls later. Oh, God. So, um, so they, he, yeah. 
That's what they were so. mad. That's what uh, Weymouth was mad at David Byrne for doing. Like that's why I thought that was credit. interesting because yeah. yeah, basically, yes, yeah, she did it, and then he's claiming they did the same thing to him. So go awesome. figure. So I thought I'd throw all that context in because I found that interesting. Yeah, that's all. That's all good stuff. I. It's funny. I never. You mentioned the Talking Heads. I never made that connection with the God, lyrics. I, yeah, oh, I, mean, I did. Right yeah. Away, yeah, right away. For sure. Yeah. I think so. I'm mixed on this album. Uh, I mm. really like a lot of the music on it, and but I found whenever they inserted lyrics or the kind of the re, the pre-recorded, um, you know, track of his journey in London, uh, that really took it took a de- kind of derailed the experience for me. I. I found some of the, I, I found the repetition on Elephant Talk and the lyrics kind of grating after a while, even though he does admittedly sound like David Byrne on that. It just didn't, it didn't work for me for, for some reason. Uh, I, I do like his voice on Frame by Frame. Um, I think that's my favorite. That kind of sounds like a Pearl Jam song or some sort of like 90s music song. Hmm. that i that i liked and i like hmm. i liked him on madakadusai too i thought that was another good track the the and thela hoon genji i found the lyrics on that um also annoying so i <laughs> like I, the spoken I, lyrics like the storytelling yes, thing yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah i i really i feel like that stuff is was kind of uh pretentious in some respects um they're doing so much interesting work on the the music side that the lyrics just they're trying i feel like they're trying to be really interesting on the lyric side as well and i don't think the album necessarily needed that um that's really interesting because i almost heard the lyrics as like onomatopoeia just loose sounds kind of josh yeah like yeah not me every every time the Mm -hmm. more i listen to this album the more it kind of like stuck okay. it stuck in my head and kind of took me took me out of it. Um, I really liked you said it or one of you guys said it. There is like a trance like quality to this, and again, this is mm-hmm. like the primal drumming type of stuff. There on throughout this whole album, I felt like you would get into a real like groove listening to it. And I think the um, the world music quality that gets inserted into this. Um, it contributes to that and and I really like that I so yeah surprisingly um, the sheltering sky and discipline also worked and I like those because there's no lyrics <laughs> <in them. laughs> so so I think uh, it'd be interesting to maybe I don't know if you could listen to this whole album without lyrics I wonder what it would be like as an experience um, the I don't know if it's my, I think I liked red a little bit more in terms of King Crimson, but I respect that they, again, they're kind of always reinventing themselves through the years. I definitely felt the funk elements that they put into that, especially on elephant talk. There's kind of like this like funky bass line to it. And I can hear some of those other things that they incorporated, maybe not the punk rock as much, but but definitely the world music and the the, uh, the the new wave and and some of those in the funk. So yeah, this was this was an interesting listen. I would definitely rate this higher had it, not, it for whatever reason that stuff just kind of really stuck in my craw and hmm. it prevented the album from rising much higher in my estimation. But yeah, it was it's good. I can definitely 
I was it's like a jam album too in some ways like I thought listening to that first track it, it would it would sound really good live you can imagine a million people dancing to kind of all of the album like like they're in India or something like some crazy no. um, concert and uh so yeah it was it was interesting listen but not as high on it as you guys were how, how many mm-hmm. listens did you give it Josh uh three that's good yeah i i I felt i and i still feel to a degree that i i need to listen to this more you know Mm -hmm. it's just it's music like this it's it's yeah just demands further listen unless you're totally put off by it like because there might be people that would listen to this being like no i can't do this right but if you're if it's intriguing to you at all Mm -hmm. like i i just especially headphones i think it's a really good headphones album just to kind of absolutely really get into those guitar parts that they're doing because there's just and there's some metal like the indiscipline part there's some heavier stuff going on here as well Mm -hmm. that they kind of were doing with red um but i yeah i think I think that this isn't even an album that could grow on me even more and, and, and having me like it even, even more. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, you are right about it being a headphones album that, and I'd like to point out that I like when bands do artistic ideas that work. And one of the things I liked on this was indiscipline and discipline being two virtuoso pieces, but Mm. resembling Mm -hmm. what they're supposed to be. And that indiscipline was like a chaotic all over the place, frantic track and discipline was, very virtuoso in its own way but in a tight structure that was much more and i i'm sure that was done on purpose um and i wouldn't even be surprised were they the the side enders on the album as well yes mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense because when you listen to those i and it was the second time i listened to this album that i realized hmm okay that's interesting there's an indiscipline and a discipline and i'm like i wonder if there's a and then i listened i was like oh well it's clear this is what they were going for um, because you put them side by side and it works. So I, I appreciated the, the sensibilities of that as well. Um, and yep, I really like this one. I, um, this is, this is my type of prog rock and world. Is this music. your, this your favorite prog rock album we've done, John? Is that fair to say? Um, I don't think this is like a true prog rock album. Cause I think there's just as much like world music influence on Cause, cause you can hear how he like is listening to like fella Kute, Kute and stuff like that as yeah. well, you know, to kind of build this and certainly, you know, the stuff that Eno and David Byrne and stuff were listed to, they were sharing influences. Right. And mm-hmm. so, um, so I don't think of it as a true prog rock album, but yeah, yeah. this uh, some of the some of the uh, more streamlined, yes, um, some some of the rush. I mean that that's more my speed than than the longer yeah. drawn out stuff. Yeah. So, so if we define this as prog rock, um, I think King King Crimson is the the prog rock band that I most connect with. It's also called post progressive. <laughs> Post Prague. So, uh, Post Prague. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> at this point, I just like it. I don't need where's to the, label it. Where's the dividing line for Post Prague? There uh, is none. <laughs> Everything's technically post, right? It draws so. upon newer developments in popular music and the avant-garde since the mid '70s. Okay, so mm. the mid '70s. So, ethnic sure. music and minimalism. Yeah. Yeah. There is. Yeah, despite the virtuoso guitar work. It is kind of minimal in, in aspects of it. it identifies I wouldn't use minimal for this album, but, but I, I know kind of what you're saying. Production-wise, it's yeah. minimal, but yeah. but It, it says here, it, it's stuffed. It, it identifies progressive rock music that stems from sources other than prog. So, okay. so well, it's prog, world music, but it's not yeah, prog. And... Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, it's, it's got to be so sometimes. hard to start to start to really describe these genres that mm. that are that are creeping up now. Um, yeah, Maybe I like. I'm with you. I like it, John. I'll be post podcast yeah. when this. Yeah, post <laughs> post In the 2020s, we'll be saying, yeah. "Oh, this is another post post punk album here in yeah, 2021." Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, all right, Kraftwerk, um, uh, Computervolt is uh, the album that we're going to be covering last right here. Um, I this one. Let's run the numbers, Matt, before I go ahead and introduce the tracks because okay. I always forget, and then we'll go from there. All right, so Computer World uh, it comes in a number. Uh, 81 in the 1980s on best ever albums number two in 1981 number 536 of all time it's Kraftwerk's third highest rated album behind dimension machine or the man machine from 1978 and trans europe 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 express from 1977 we did cover both of those records in previous episodes and it, uh sure. and computer world is not none of these records we're covering tonight were on rolling stone's list so shame on you That's rolling stone surprising to me yeah. um okay so in the montage you would have heard computer world 2 and now you're going to hear the track that follows it on the album computer love Okay, well, earlier we talked about, in the last segment, we talked about King Crimson Discipline and them taking a hiatus, and uh, Kraftwerk also did the same thing, guys, because they released The Man Machine, which uh, was recorded, as we all know, at the Kling Klang Studio, one of my favorite <laughs> studios yes. of all of that, right up there with the mobile studio uh, and different stuff in terms of the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. of, uh, of recording studios. And then they began slowly working in that same studio on the album that would become Computer World in 1978. And by May 1981, they'd finally released the album. So they actually spent three years working on this album. Hmm. Uh, In that time, they, you know, if you remember in The Man Machine when we talked about it, they were influenced by all kinds of interesting sort of pop art type ideas like the uh, suprematism movement. And I think there's a pretty funny conversation we have about that where it's sort of, it's it's like ge- geometric art, you know, painted in colors and mm. sort of they studied that. And uh, there was a, a Russian artist and uh, architect, uh, L. Lizitsky, that they were in. So as you've probably figured out, Kraftwerk has always been... Uh, sort of enamored with the idea of um, technology and efficiency and sort of Mm -hmm. disembodied humanity and ideas like that with like a, you know, we've talked about the motoric beat before and sort of like a precision that's in there as well. And both of those movements uh, talked uh, about that. And and during this time, Kraftwerk kind of just slowly worked on that album and 
continue to sort of view the world. A lot of Kraftwerk's sensibility is really looking almost like pop artists to some degree. You know, they're looking at the world and trying to figure it out. Uh, and that way I kind of almost feel like they have some of the sensibilities of like an Andy Warhol or something when, you know, whereas Andy Warhol was always trying to figure out the next, you know, zeitgeist of cool kind mm -hmm. of and pop culture. I feel like Kraftwerk is sort of more like what's the next evolution of technology and progress, right? So a more scientific version of it. Um, I could make a joke that I won't make about that being the difference between like American and German sensibilities, but you know, uh, it's there. I think it's also important to talk about that era, 1978 through 81. So I'll kind of pop quiz you guys. Um, I don't, I mean, this is not going to be a shock to anybody based on the song titles and also um, the name of the album, uh, but this is a theme about technology, uh, <laughs> but it's especially about certain types of technology. What you know, knowing the era that it's in and what we know about it, what particularly do you think was at the forefront of the guys in Kraftwerk's mind during this time? Because I think it's actually very, it's a very interesting side conversation we could have before we talk about this album. Any was, any guesses? You mean beyond computers? <laughs> well, like it's, how they're it's taking specifically. Over, how but it's specifically about personal and home computers. Okay. I don't know if you guys, you know, and, and that, I think that's important to mention because like technology and computers well, in before like the early eighties, which I think we forget, right. was not really a personal, yeah. like some people it had academic it, but, and military uses. Exactly. It was like yes. you went to work at some places, especially if you were in what we would call a STEM career now. Right. And you mm -hmm. used a computer. And if you were one of the people that were into computers, you had to like, build a computer and right. like you had to be a real hobbyist right and you now we live in the era where you know i think all three of us largely grew up with a computer in our house for most of our life you know i'm sure we can all remember maybe not having it or having you know depending right. on the level of technology of our parents right it's kind of commodore know, 64 baby <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. it's it's and I, I think Josh, this might be up your lane a little bit, like in terms of where we're going here. But it's kind of that this is specifically about well, what's it going to be like when everybody has a computer in their house? And this was actually somewhat of a like when they were doing this, it was sort of like, well, what is that going to be a thing where everybody's going to have a computer mm -hmm. at one time well, it's, and it you know, seems communicate like... via the computer? It almost seems yeah. like it's kind of like a, similar to like when Radiohead did OK Computer. It was kind of like how it's isolating and how it's kind of like, you It know, is, but it they just... were reacting to something that was immersed in popular culture. Like the idea of right. having computers in it. Like you're 100% right, Matt. Like, but they're coming at it once the computer had, you know, there's the internet. Like in how, that's a little bit more of what it's like. I think what's fascinating about this album is that, that the theme of this is personal computing and the idea of computer technology and the ability for that to possibly break down barriers on societal control and digital surveillance. That was the message on this. And when you think about the era we're in now, it's fascinating, right, that somebody was making an album in 1978 and 81 with all of these themes. Like, boy, we might lose, you know, there, there's like, there's going to be some issues with being able to keep tabs on people, but also the idea of like within that world, you know, they were so ahead of their time in some ways in terms of the theme that they were doing. I also think, and I don't know if you guys mentioned this, but the album was completely analog. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did you guys catch that? Like, and, and no. I did after I listened to it and it's there, but 
they specifically made the idea of this album as being an analog album, even though it's about computers, which I thought was a nice little sort of subversive, you know, artistic statement in many ways. Um, and you so, can tell if it's an analog versus digital recording. I, I will be very honest. I didn't, right? I, I only, I'm putting that out there because obviously my, my ears are not trained enough for that, right? But this right. was in the research I did. But okay. I just thought it was fascinating that they did it because, I mean, you know, one of the things of analog is that it doesn't involve computer technology, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? That's a yeah. big piece of analog well, recording, and, and which still, is and, funny because it's almost how, like a reaction to the theme of the album, right? Like, well, how much was digital? You, right? How much was digital recording actually happening in 1981? Wasn't that was a relatively newer kind of thing, though, wasn't it? I, I think. Wasn't it was, but they were doing it. They were yeah. using it in previous albums in the because 70s? you know at the time okay. it was the, the the vanguard, right? Like they mm. were doing the recording, and it was it was a thing. But the fact, like you had a choice to do it, right? And if you're a band like Kraftwerk that was in that world, right? Like you're particularly apt to do it. You also have to remember in the early '80s the effect of Kraftwerk is all over popular music because like synth pop, like Gary yeah. Newman, and like you know. M, right? The guy who did pop music and stuff and just the whole wave of stuff that's coming. I mean, Kraftwerk's protégés, you know, are knocking down the charts at this point. You know, not to mention the fact that you you had, you know, the, the Berlin Trilogy stuff and Eno and, you know, people being influenced by what Kraftwerk had done. So I just think it was interesting they took a step back a little bit and made this concept album. Um, yeah. So I did want to bring that up because I think that's interesting context for this album instead of like a full bio um it did relatively well in the uk it peaked at number 15 um and it did become silver um which you know is relatively successful uh, as with most things with craft work in the united states it did not have a large commercial appeal um it had a cult following um but it did not kind of cross over as well uh to the general public but obviously it was highly um influential i mean my gosh this album is much like all Kraftwerk stuff it feels like is sampled all over the place i think most prominently you can't hear you know the the easiest one is you can't hear computer love and not immediately place that song talk by Coldplay like immediately yeah. as the song i mean it was like instantaneous it's like oh jesus like look at this so um i did think that it was funny i did read an article about that where chris martin um sent a uh, a letter, a handwritten letter to Kraftwerk, I believe. I, I, I'm kind of paraphrasing this, so I well, apologize. That's the only way to... you can reach them is by handwritten. Well, right, and we remember we had that that like sort of like the interesting things about communicating with them, which yeah. is also funny. And they're making this music that's futuristic, but they're like very. I found that hilarious, but um, I call them was this... right right when they're picking up the phone. Because exactly. It ring. Yep. At exact times. Yep. So. Um, I thought it was very funny that uh, the story I read said that he wrote a handwritten letter asking if he could use that sample for talk. And uh, he received a letter in the mail um, later that was apparently just the word yes in lowercase letters was the, what the response was. So I, I, that's the story I read. If there's more context on that, I'd love to hear it because they funny. cracked me up. But yeah, so uh, but this album has been... Um, sampled uh, all over the place uh you may also know and i i didn't at first until i did the research but then i went back i'm like oh uh, the song fergalicious by fergie uh does 
uh, borrow the opening synth line uh, of It's More Fun to Compute as well. And there's a bunch of hip hop samples of this. LCD Sound System sampled this. There's there's a ton of people. Um, you know, we've mentioned African Bambata before because, you know, Trans Europe Express was used on there. But he also uses uh, some of the lyrics um, uh, from Numbers on this album as well um, for another track. So there's all kinds of stuff. Anyway. Mm-hmm. A uh, little bit of a different type of bio right there, because I wanted to just kind of use context right there, because there's not a lot. I mean, they were recording this album and largely chilling out and observing the world, right? That's kind of what was happening here. But yeah. um, I think the first person to, to talk on this one is Matt, right? That's your turn to start us. Uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I liked listening to this record. Um, I heard a lot of these songs in the show that I saw a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's interesting. It made me laugh because was it the fir- was it the first song? I think it's computer world where they're just like business, yes, people, numbers. <laughs> numbers. They just and so I was laughing because first of all it's just funny because it's just like these singular words that are just mm-hmm. the repeating. But um, but I also remember at the show that they had like they would as they were saying those words, the words would appear on the screen to really hit home. Yeah, <laughs> what they're saying. So uh, so yeah, this, this and pocket calculator that made me laugh. You know, it's just it's 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 um. Yeah, I, I liked it. It's it um sonically it's it doesn't stand out uh in one way or another from the other two records. Like they kind of are doing this really polished synth music. Um, you know, the production's great. Yeah, and I could not tell the difference between I mean it all the production sounds all the same, so the fact that they're doing this analog versus maybe if they did the other ones dig- digitally, um I, I I'm not hearing too much of a difference there, but um but it's uh it, it's yeah, it's just I it's oddly it's calming in some ways um it's it it it's hard not to laugh or it's it's because it's kind of goofy as well it's yeah. like i think sherry i was i had it played in the kitchen and sherry's like god if an atm machine could make music <laughs> it would sound like this you know the bleeps and bloops and stuff oh and then she also made it she, she also said this kind of sounds like is this like where sprockets comes from i was like yeah probably and then she looked it up and actually the theme song from sprockets is uh, a song, a Kraftwerk song called "Electric Cafe" from 1986 that's huh. sped up. So, uh, so they it's directly taken from that. So I thought that that was kind of funny as well. But yeah, this is um, it, it's it's a really, in some ways, it's simplistic because it's just here's the synth. I'm gonna play these very what yeah. seems to be kind of basic notes um, behind very basic beats, um, and it's. Uh, it's it's just really interesting. I like synth pop or synth rock to begin with, and again, there's the influence is just it, it's very similar to the first two records in that um, you know this is where a lot of the a lot of the synth pop comes from in the '80s that people really you know obviously the, the influence is there. Uh, the uh, the the computer love song. It's interesting that that is it's it's not only sampled in that Coldplay song it's very much the whole melody of the song and it's not just the do 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 it's not just that part it's the other parts too it's that you know it's it, it Coldplay really lays into it essentially it's like yeah. they're they're totally ripping that song off which it makes sense it's a very it's a that's a kind of a catchy melody that they're playing there um they do a similar thing in the last two tracks with home computer and it's more fun to compute. They kind of take that's that they do. I remember them doing this with trans Europe express the last couple of songs where they were different quote unquote songs. Cause they had they, the tracks would start and they had different mm-hmm. titles, but it was basically a different kind of take on the same 
melody that that was already established before. So it kind of blends together. And um, so I, it's it's fine. I I, I like it. Um, I, I don't know which Kraftwerk album I would say that I like the most. I think that um, it, it's really hard because it all kind of just that this is like volume one, volume two, and volume three in a lot of ways for me. Um, and I like it all, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's not, I don't think this is going to be one of my top albums for, for the, you know, the, the, the decade, you know, re-listenability it's, it's there. It's not huge. You know, this is not where I'm going to go to most of the time. Um, but I can't, and it's the other thing too. I can't help listening to this without getting a smile. It's just, it just sounds so, it sounds dated, but it's also, but you also know that it's really, uh, you know, revolutionary in other ways. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, it's, it's, yeah, it's just like boop, 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 boop. Like it's just, you know, the computer noises that they're making. So, uh, so I'm thumbs up on it. I like Kraftwerk. I like seeing them live, and uh, you know, it's uh, they're they're an interesting band for sure. So I'm um, thumbs up. Yeah, I I really like this album. I thought it was it's my favorite Kraftwerk album of the ones that we've listened to. And it's interesting that you said it was analog, John, because I feel like this is the kind of more complex than the previous albums. I feel like there's... They're, they're all of... sneaky complex, but yeah. I know what you're saying, yeah. And also... When Matt said simple, I was like, mm, I don't know if simple. It sounds simple, but there's a lot of shit going on, you know, production yeah. trick-wise. Yeah. yeah, they're incorporating a lot of, you know, obviously electronic voices, they're... The uh, pocket calculator, you know, pressing a special key, it makes a little melody, and then they play the the little like ring kind of ringtone <laughs> thing, which I loved. And uh, it it sounds uh, maybe counterintuitively, it sounds kind of warmer as a whole, I think, than their previous albums. I agree. And, yeah, yep. and I can't figure out what it is in the music that's doing that. The synth sound, maybe the pro- I think the production is really good um, on this, mm-hmm. and I think in some respects the synth sounds more modern and maybe that's why i'm thinking it's warmer as a result but i really um you know talking about the uh the king crimson tracks that that balance each other you know computer world and computer world 2 they're they're kind of doing different things and i think they're of of a piece as well you know that computer world 2 is more instrumental and i think it's supposed to kind of be a counterpoint to computer world and uh, all of the tracks are pretty strong throughout. I didn't like numbers that much, although that seems to be a popular song when I was looking at the, the stats. But that one I didn't really respond to. But I really like Computer World and Pocket Calculator and, and kind of the whole back half of the or the whole second half of the album. The home computer is interesting. It kind of has a darker synth sound. It's a little more menacing in some some respect for in my head but it's still catchy and i think at the end of the day craftwork makes catchy music and i think you can't help but hear pocket calculator and have it get in your head and make you want to dance like a robot and and uh laugh to because i think they do have a sense of humor with what they're doing i think they're like john said they are being intentional and and definitely going for themes and exploring ideas, but I think they're also having fun with it. And I feel like that comes through um, in a lot of these these tracks. I mean, and, and that's been the case since the beginning, right? Trans-Europe Express um, had had that humor as well with um, that one song, uh, the model. Um, showroom Dummies. Yeah, Showroom Dummies, exactly. Thank you. Um, 
and so I think that's always been the case. But yeah, I I hear what you're saying, Matt. I think they are simple and run in some respect, but they also kind of like that's like the foundation for which everything has been built on mm-hmm. for electronic music, I think. And and um, yeah, this one this one spoke to me in a way that the other two didn't, and I I was into it throughout. I, I just kind of got into a groove listening to it, whereas the other ones, like I said, for, I think I responded to it more because it was warmer versus the other ones felt like more industrial and removed and cold. Um, this one maybe felt more contemporary or more 80s, quote unquote. Um, so I, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to, I'm gonna. you're right, because I totally forgot that when I remember, especially Trans-Europe Express, I think I was using the term dystopian. I think I might have mm-hmm. used that a little bit with yeah. Dice Mensch Machine. Um, this is not that. You're, so you're right. This is, this, there is a lighter feeling to this. Um, and I totally forgot I, that I used those terms to describe the other records. But yeah, there's, there's, this is a little bit more light, lighthearted than that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah you're, I, I, I agree with that. I feel like I hear completely different Kraftwerk albums than you guys do. To some, like I, I, I love this album, and and I'll be honest, I don't know if there is a band that has gained my esteem more in the time that we've listened to it than Kraftwerk. I just think they're endlessly fascinating. I think that they, they have their hand on the pulse to some degree, of some some music and societal trends that I have really grown to appreciate like like i said in the the bio i i think of them almost as like a combination of performance artists mixed with like commentators Mm. on technology and science i i hear why you guys are saying that it sounds warmer but the second half of this album is like when the computers take over like they're way more ominous than I think you guys are kind of giving them credit. For. Like I, the first little bit is almost like the idea of like when you're playing around with the computer, right? Like oh, you know, yeah. it's a computer world. Use it at job. Use it in business and stuff. And then pocket calculator is like, look what it can do. You know, be, be, and then like numbers is sort of like there. And then computer world two is when like shit starts to get real, right? And it's like. I'm becoming dependent on these computers. Mm, and then it's like, I'm in love with this computer. And then I have a home computer. <laughs> like and then it's computer. more fun to compute. Yeah. And like, if you, <laughs> it's like, mood wise, if you listen, it's, it's, um, it gets dark. <laughs> kind of like, and I mean, yeah. a lot of, like, I don't think Kraftwerk has like a truly dystopian viewpoint, but like, they're very aware, aware of like, the duality of of like modernism and technology Mm -hmm. and uh i think a lot of what i find fascinating about them is a big piece of their music is about efficiency but also they're almost making a comment on like can you create like uh an emotional response from this sort of computerized or digitized or metronomic type of music and i think they're very like the the word i would use on them is they're extremely subversive in terms of their music and it's something that the more i listen to them the more i pick up on um i also think it's fascinating like i know that you said like i'm surprised numbers is popular uh i get it i mean numbers sounds like any number of like 80s hip-hop songs it basically sounds like an 80s hip-hop sample when you listen to it and uh, i know like uh, professor x uh 
or uh, excuse me, not Professor X, uh, the NWA's um, sort of like the the guy that helped form it with Dr. Dre and Easy. I was reading that he's a big fan of of this album. It doesn't surprise me because I think it's very interesting how Kraftwerk operates in a way that they could spill into hip hop or electronic music or even rock music. I mean, mm-hmm. shit, when like Chris Martin, early hip proto hip hop artists and like electronic music, you know, artists are all interested in what you're doing. You know, you're, you're speaking to a pretty damn large audience right there. Um, I also think it's interesting that Kraftwerk to some degree are sort of guys that would get stereotyped as being, you know, uh, you know, computer nerds or hobbyists or stuff, but they, they come across like that. They're aware of that almost, you know, and like they lean into it a little bit, but in a way that they, they become cool because they're aware of the fact that they are obtuse kind of, which is a little bit of what Sprockets was, Matt, when you think about it, right? Like there's this guy who's completely convinced of like that he's cool even though he's doing these things when you look at it it's like it's just kind of like ridiculous but um there's an aesthetic to it um i really like this album i I liked a lot of the albums this week so i don't know if i'd say it's it's my favorite or not but it's it's one of my favorite albums we've covered in the 80s so far and um i i I just want to shout out the complexity and the trance-like quality that you can fall into here. Um, I always, it's always fun to me to listen to an album that doesn't have much in the way of lyrics to guide me, but I can still get a story from it anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you guys said that like you smiled when you heard this album. I, I know what you're saying. Like Pocket Calculator is a is a very fun song to listen to. But I don't know if I was processing them as like a haha or like a goofy sort of sound. Like there's always like an ominousness, like to what what Kraftwerk's kind of telling you, like be be appreciative of the technology and embrace it, but embrace it with limits. And like that seems to be sort of like the, the through line of all of their music, right? Like be both embrace and beware of modernity. But yeah. you know, embrace and beware of computers or you know um societal progress or you know different things like that convenience right was another one like and mm-hmm. and i just i don't know like listening to craft work in 2022 when they're talking about like topics like our tech our computers taking over people's lives like is it good that we're communicating through these digital methods and like using it to filter our emotions and digital privacy i'm like jesus this album speaks even more in the modern era than it did back then to some degree and the fact that they were like already like "Mm, this could be problematic and like i just try to think of like how they view the world now because it's kind of like oh shit like all of our dystopian stuff happened you know so Mm -hmm. like I, i can't help but think of like social media right it's like when you're primarily communicating with the world through like computerized things it seems like that's kind of like the worst case scenario of what like you know, and online dating, right? You know, computer that's yeah. like computer love, you know, it's it just was kind of interesting to me. So Well this yeah, you bring up a lot of good points. I never th- this is a strong concept album if it follows the progression of what you said, which I can kind of see in the titles when you were describing the I mean I never read read that that was what it was, but it it just seems I I'm very certain that that's what they were going for, to mm. be quite honest. Like it just feels that way, to yeah. me at least. Yeah. Yeah, and this is and and I it just I it's 
it makes sense. I, you know, it's not something that I would have thought of. And it's not right. something like I, again, I don't, I don't listen. It's so interesting just like talking to you guys about this stuff because it's just, it's, it's when I listen to music, I'm not like trying to find out messages or trying to find patterns of like, you know, ideas and stuff, even with something that kind of like, and, and when you describe it like that, John, this kind of just smacks you in the face with, with, with that, you know, after you're hearing that, right. it's like, Oh, of course it means that, but it's just indicative of how I just don't, I don't, I'm not thinking my brain's not going there. I'm like, what is it doing to me well, musically? Think, and yes, admittingly, admittedly, like I, I'm missing out on stuff when I, when I'm doing that, but it's well, just I'm not how saying I, I'm right. Uh, this works. is how I'm hearing it. You but, know, I'm but, just, that's, but, I'm, yeah, I didn't read but that. You, but you it's definitely, my take. But you definitely seem to listen to music and try to draw messages out, or you try to draw what the yes. theme is, or like like that, like all the all of that stuff. And I am not doing that at all. Like even you know even albums that are like, you guys are like, oh yeah, that's easily I can tell that that's a concept album. Sometimes I'm like, oh I didn't had no clue, right? Like and I just because my I am just not thinking about that, and I know. Well, I'm to me, when you make an album, myself, but to some yeah. degree you are. It's always a concept to some degree, right? Because yeah. you're making an album. If you were not, you'd be releasing singles. I guess the, the most I think about that is like the how are the tracks um, ordered in terms of like, mm -hmm. you know, how they flow into one one song into another. Like, how does that feel? But that's more of a sonic kind of a thing rather than like a message or storytelling kind of a thing. Um, so that's kind but of to me, it's my, easier my with craft work because craft work is a concept band. Yeah. So, of course, they're going to like to me, like. That's the first thing I should be list. I I do it to begin with. That's why I think when sometimes people are like, I can't pigeonhole your tendencies, you know, John, as much musically as other. I'm like, that's because some of it is because what I listen to music for isn't necessarily genres or sounds, right? It's it's like, what what is the that when I'm doing albums, right? Like, is this album interesting to me? Is always at the forefront, and if it's not interesting to me, it can sound beautiful. And it will never rise to a certain level. Like mm -hmm. that's, I think that might be the stylistic difference between me and you, right? Like Matt, for you, Matt, the, there's a beauty aesthetic, right? Of, of the, um, the sonic, right? Like a certain sonic sound that hits yes. you, right? Whereas for me, there has to be, it doesn't have to be deeply complete, but there has to be something, right? That it speaks to, yeah. um, beyond just, oh, that's like six songs I like, but they're just kind of there and, and in an album format, at least. Yeah, I can so. love a song that's absolutely nonsense. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I can too, but but it, it would help if it's in a greater, yeah, artistic the yeah. And, no, but and it that, makes sense. And Josh, and I, I feel I, like you're in the middle, yeah. And I and I see what you're saying too here because you're right. Those last couple of songs, it does get a little bit. It does get darker than the beginning. So so yeah, I'm just I'm. Yeah, I, I mean, just, I felt like I just had to point that out because you guys were like, it's very no, light, right. and I I hear what you're saying, but it's like I didn't. My I vibe I, was that this was not a like light album. It was. I guess I didn't like, get as much of a because when Josh said that that this you know initially I, my recollection was like right when I listened to Trans Europe Express I was like man a lot of that just seems just it seemed dystopian to me and I didn't get that feeling. Well, it was so yeah. That's when I jumped on. I'm like yeah it's not as it's not a, it's it's lighter because of that but well, it does even, progress in a different way. I agree. Well, even think about and I just put I just came up with this so this could be but. You know, Chris Martin sampled Computer Love for Talk by Coldplay, right? right? Which is about, like, him trying to talk out a relationship, right? That's kind of ending, right? If you know that song, it's like, you know, can we talk? You know, it's basically, you know, the relationship's falling apart, right? They're not communicating and stuff. And 
like computer love kind of has that aesthetic even if he's not doing it and so it's just kind of and, and chris martin would have released that what that x and y i think that was on right so five oh four mid 2000s yeah around there when that was becoming a thing right like communicating more electronically and feeling disconnected and it's just it just was there's a there's a lot of those that's i think why i like so much like who was influenced by this or where to come from because you see these through yep. lines like you know chris martin takes that and kind of to some degree is able to connect that sample that he wants to this song about a relationship ending hmm. <coughs> anyway that's that's my take on it i could be completely wrong but it could be it's better than my theory which is like it's just about computers which is not very deep <laughs> well, it so. is but yeah computers. i was hoping to talk <laughs> a little bit more about i'll be honest i was hoping bloops. to do a little bit more about personal computing and talk about like you know just how revolutionary it was to have a computer in your house and like how I don't know if me and that all of us know, like, I, I think like, even as I talk about it, like I know it like in like, wow. Yeah. You know, you think about what it, but I don't know because it wasn't really a thing. Right. And right. So maybe we can explore that another time. I mean, we're all old enough that we didn't have computers in our house at one point. So, I mean, I, I don't remember I, really. I, I had I a remember. Commodore 64 oh, early wow. on. Okay. I mean, I can remember my dad like buying a Dell, right? At like the very yeah. early 90s, but it was sort of just this device that you typed on, right? Like it was no, like there wasn't like an internet component. To I just it, played video know? games. So, we had all these floppy disks and we had, we had yeah. video games that we had to, we had to actually load the program. I remember right, that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It was very much like an ancillary thing. I just think it's very interesting that they were aware of the fact that, um, and you you know, you'll hear like, you know, Steve Wozniak, I know, right, talked about that a lot, like that he saw the personal computer coming before anybody, and right, wasn't that kind of Apple's deal, right? That yeah. They, yep. Yeah. That was their so. whole angle is getting home mm-hmm. computers in. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. Good. I think that's a good read, John. I I like. Okay. I like it. So. There you go. Well. Speaking of good reads or good listens for next week, we've got another full episode next week, guys, correct? Full bio, full talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, Matt, you want to do the honors of talking about what we're going to be covering? Yep, so we're going to be covering um, Rush again with Mm. their album Moving Pictures. Uh, All these are 1981, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the first time, two new bands are going to be covering, uh, and Josh Josh is going to be covering Rush, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, I will be covering the Go-Go's with Beauty mm. and the Beat from mm-hmm. 1981. And John is going to be covering the Psychedelic Furs with Talk, Talk, Talk. Nice. Three very different albums next week, so I look forward to that. And, uh, yeah, any final parting thoughts for the CTS Army? Uh, Matt, you should check out the Go-Go's documentary. Um, oh, okay. That came out 2020, I think. That's pretty good. It's I like will, you I can will. rent it, or if you have Showtime, you can stream it. Okay, I do. Um, I do like that. That's one of the things I like to, you know, for a band that I'm researching for the first time. It's like, is there a documentary out there? And that's like I said, I, f- I found one on Susie and the Banshees. Some of them are good, some of them not so good. But um, it's it's always interesting just to see the footage. Sometimes I think even with the Joy Division one was okay, the Susie and the Banshees one was okay, but it was cool to see live performances. And you know, um, so uh, that's always a cool thing. But I will, I'll try I, to check that out. I always love to do that, but after we talk about them, so like you don't fall mm. in love with your subject. Maybe it's the old journalist journalism major in me that like don't fall in I, love with your subject when you cover them. That I, I'm I could be guilty of that. So sometimes I purposely deprive myself of that to not be led to like something. But 
I, I, I think there's some truth in that because I think after mm-hmm. I watch something like that and you hear and you see the performances and you hear like why, like other mm-hmm. reasons why they're so good or why they're influential, that makes you go, oh, okay, I get it more now than I would yeah. otherwise. Um, but I, I don't know. We're an amateur podcast against. So. <laughs> and I, I never took a journalism class in my life. So, you yeah. know, forgive me for being biased. Fair enough. Well, and I would say I'll leave with this. Uh, I, I always recommend checking out the albums that we're listening to if you're a, a CTS completist. But I think particularly in this week, um, they're not long listens. Um, it's not overwhelming. So if there was ever a week to just check out the albums just to see um, what's there, it's not often that you get nine for nine in terms of thumbs up across the board. So this would be a week where you could uh, maybe check it out. So, all right, this is John signing off for Matt and Josh. Thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to seeing you same time, same place, potentially (laughs) next week. Combing the Stacks can be found on 13 different platforms. Viewer feedback can be sent to combingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at CombingThe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks throwing us a follow.